Good morning, listeners, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Riddles in the Dark, brought to you by the Mythgard Institute, the show where you'll hear the best Tolkien punditry and speculation about The Hobbit there and back again, uh, subtitled, <laughs> not the Battle of the Five, the Armies, the... <laughs> If, if you can't if you can't guess from our intro, guess what's on our minds. Yeah. But, <sighs> but yeah. that's not the main focus of today. Today, what we'll really be talking about is, um, I think, part two of a multi-episode discussion of the siege of Erebor, the siege of the Lonely Mountain. And today, we'll be talking about it from the point of view of Lake Town and the men, well, human beings, since we don't want to be sexist on this show, the human beings of Lake Town. Um, and in particular, we're going to be talking about Bard and, and you know, what, what do the descendants of Geryon and Bard and Dale and Lake Town, what are they hoping to get out of the siege? What will be their motivations? And what will their relationship with the elves be? And the most pressing question, of course, is will they be singing where there's a whip, there's a way as they march on the mountain? So, let's get right into it, since we dawdled around all morning talking about completely unrelated stuff. With me as always, I'm Dave Kale, your co-host, and with me as always are Trish Lambert and Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor. Hello, hello. Good the, morning. The, to- the Tolkien, the Professor. <laughs> the Tolkien, the yes, Professor. the Tolkien, the so, Professor. So, yeah, obviously the big and, issue, and it's funny because... And this, is, and this is Trish Lambert number one. That's right, Trish Lambert That's number right. one. Um <laughs> This uh, the, obviously the big issue uh, to Tolkien fans is the addition of the definite article, and this is I have to say exactly the kind of thing that I suspect the outside world would laugh at us about. Yes. You know, like why are they all so bothered about the the word "the" in the title? Um, but, I've already gotten that. I made a comment on the Riddles of the Dark prediction page and already got called down from one of the RAITD people. Right. Right. And, you know, to me, it's kind of interesting, actually. I find it, I choose to find this uh, a sort of a fascinatingly revealing glimpse into, I don't know where this came from exactly, if this is a sort of a relic of the, like, basically, um, is the the in the name, the Battle of the Five Armies, is this something that was simply imposed upon it by, um, you know, by the studio? You know, was the studio saying, you know, did they say oh, it's called the Battle of Five Armies? And they're like, actually, it sounds much better if you say the Battle of the Five Armies. Um, you know, so w- was this a completely non, um, you know, New Zealand decision that was being made? Um, I'd be kind of interested to know that because it would it would. Um, just simply become irrelevant at that point. But if well, I have a little bit of evidence for yeah, you. When, yeah. When you finish your thought. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I can tell you right now. I at first thought, okay, why would they do that? Because it's just so obviously not the way it is in the book. And I thought, okay, well maybe, maybe it was a copyright thing. Maybe somebody else had already registered the battle of five armies. But then I listened, I saw a video um, that came out just recently that was an interview of several of the actors, you know, and the question from the interviewer to each of the actor was, okay, what's going to, you know, what do you think uh, is really of note in movie three that you could talk about? And more than one of the actors called it the Battle of the Five Armies, which led me to believe that Jackson has been calling it that all this time. So I think it's Jackson. Yeah, that's kind of my suspicion too because i i had vague memories of that and i i kind of brushed it off as like oh you know haha ignorant actors um but yeah i i 
See, okay, now here's the sort of defense of it, or at least the way in which I find it kind of interesting. Because, of course, the main difference between the Battle of Five Armies and the Battle of the Five Armies is the, the, the specification of the number. When you call it the Battle of the Five Armies, it gives this sense of inevitability of the five armies in question. And it's ironic because, of course, one very common reaction to the book is, and I remember having this reaction as a child, what are the five armies exactly? Like, which one are the... How do you construe the five armies? Is it the armies of the men and elves and dwarves? That's pretty clear that those are three, but who are the other two? Um, You know, do the eagles count as an army? When I was little, I was assuming that the five armies in question were the, the elves and dwarves and men the goblins and the eagles. That was what I thought were the five armies. And then later on, I I was realizing, no, actually it's meant to be like two armies on one side and three on the other side, that the wolves and the, and the, and the goblins are, are like allied armies because that's clearly how they're introduced back in, you know, back when we meet them, you know, in chapter six, um, you know, we, we meet the wolves separately and then we hear about their allies, the goblins, so, so, so it's supposed to be those two armies versus the other three armies, and then you know Bjorn and the eagles are just kind of extras and not. And don't forget the bats, not right? Counted. The bats. Right, the bats. Yeah, which are just kind of add-ons. And then, um, then of course later on, I, I, you know, went on to study more about the history of the Hobbit and the, you know, the, the earlier drafts of the Hobbit and discovered that Tolkien himself was very unclear on this point um, and shifted around. It was originally going to be called the Battle of Seven Armies because not only were the eagles also going to be counted, but Bjorn was initially going to show up with an army of bears, um, not alone, as he does uh, uh, in the published book. So there was going to be also the army of eagles and the army of bears. So it was going to be the Battle of Seven Armies originally, and it got pared down. Um, and by the way, the army of bears thing makes a lot of sense if you think about it in the context of the book. You remember that scene, you know, when uh, the, the nighttime at Bjorn's house, right? When Bilbo hears all the shuffling feet and they see all the footprints of the of all the bears of varying different sizes that are outside. The idea of Bjorn as the sort of captain of a large group of bears um, has already been prepared. So, you know, y- you can see how when Tolkien wrote that, he was already anticipating that army of bears, Bjorn leading that whole cohort of bears um, into the final battle at the end. Um, so it, ma- it makes a certain amount of sense. Um, or rather, it in some ways kind of makes a little bit more sense of that scene. In the published book, all of Bjorn's bear companions just kind of drop out of the story. Um, they never come back again as they originally did. really, really sad. It, it is. You know, Bjorn's I bear friends. Him. Yeah. So anyway, um, so so I said there's there, there's some irony about the fact that the the new title of the film is speaking of the five armies as if they are extremely definite and obvious which five that you know this battle is merely like the the sort of the clashing of you know five very definite armies uh, that we are already familiar with and anticipating. But even to this point, I mean, in the film world, to me, the irony is the five armies seem to me even less definite now 
than they did in the book. I don't know what what the five armies are going to be. We're going to get Dan and an army of dwarves, so presumably we're, you know, we're going to get the humans, the dwarves, and the elves again. Obviously, the, 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 the orcs are coming in. Presumably, Azog and his army from Dol Guldur is going to be four. I cannot imagine, under the based on the way that they've been describing them, the, the wargs have never been anything but the mounts of the... Um, of the of the orcs it is therefore impossible for me to conceive of the wolves being numbered among the five in jackson's world because because i mean any more than you would say that like you know the the charge of the rohirrim in the battle of pelinor field was the attack of two armies the armies of the rohirrim and of their horses you know i mean you just wouldn't think that way um and and to me the the you know the wolf um, mounts of Azog and company have been no more differentiated as a separate army than, than the horses of the Rohirrim were. So who's the fifth army? The eagles, I guess. Well, do you think the eagles? I mean, the eagles of, of any of the animals to me would qualify, especially Presumably. given that they're going to be playing a role in Lord of the Rings. So he might choose those to be an army. Presumably, in which case the five armies in the title are a different five armies from the five armies, yeah. which makes the, the the addition of the definite article even more vexed, you know, even more ironic. Would he consider the dwarves from the Iron Hills be a separate army from the dwarves at Erebor? I mean, I guess if you count Thorin and his, what, uh, eight companions? <laughs> As an army, <laughs> as, as an army, I guess. Uh, um, I can't imagine they're holding those separately. I mean, you got to think that the dwarves are lumped together. Wait, of course. Hang on, for a second there, I was forgetting Roak and the ravens, who would obviously constitute <laughs> the fifth army. Never mind, I've oh, solved boy. the problem. Yeah, yeah. I, what was I thinking? Brian makes the point, which I was going to bring up, which is how about somebody from Dol Guldur? Maybe the Battle of Dol Guldur is done, and, they, and that somebody comes from Dol Guldur. Good guys, like you know. Elf army, the good guys. Yeah. The hedgehogs, you know. Hedgehogs, yeah. bunnies, yeah. yeah. Maybe there's even multiple factions of uh, orcs and goblins and... You know, we may may get to the end of this movie and still not be able to figure out which... which (laughs) You know, which in its way would be an excellent adaptation of the book. I mean, that's exactly how it is in the book. So, you know, that's... It's it's just that they've, they've... you know, and I'm kind of presuming without even thinking about it, without even realizing they were doing this, they've really put a spotlight on it by the use of by the addition of that definite article. Yeah, I, I, my con- yeah, that's my concern is that that is somehow maybe we're reading too much into it, but maybe that's that's an indicator that they that they actually are going to sit down and try to explain this. Mm-hmm. There's going to be like a scene of exposition where they where they enumerate the. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, oh, yeah. hopefully not that's like the Rankin Bass be. version. You know, I mean, that's yeah. that's that was. And for those of you who are not familiar <laughs> with it, uh, in the cart in the in the in the seventies cartoon version, um, uh, Bilbo is you know observing the battle of five armies happening, and he is by the way completely scathing. There, there's a there's a really transparent anti-war. Um, uh, uh, bias throughout the depiction of the Battle yeah. of Five Armies, um, you know, and it's you know you have to remember it's 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 like early mid seventies America, you know, the, the anti war movement was still really big, and um, and it, but it's it very much expresses that Bilbo is you know the the whole descent into the battle, um, 
even when the goblins come in, is 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 described as as this sort of ridiculous, horrible, stupid, wasteful action on the part of the leaders of the armies, and uh, and that's what Thorin is repenting of in the end uh, on his deathbed. It, it seems in the Rankin Bass film. But anyway, so Bilbo is just standing there, looking down, sort of sardonically on the army. And says, you know, it's it's a battle of three armies, and then the other you know people keep coming. He's like, now it's four armies. Ridiculous. And and you know, and he keeps sort of keeping track as new armies join, uh, and it's anyway. Um, it's it's like a, plus the plus the depiction of the battle is like little dots, little around. dots with like uh, dust cloud lines, dust clouds. you know, yeah. like so, yeah. sort of like Pigpen's dust dust cloud and Charlie Brown. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what it yeah. looks like. It's like it's like the uh, they should have had the count from Sesame Street there counting. The <laughs> yeah, it's almost like that. Really, he doesn't do it in the Transylvanian accent, but other than that, it's pretty. It's pretty similar. Which is, which is unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Now, Liesel's asking what happens if they bring back the bears. I'll be delighted. I would love to see an army of bears Corey come will in. Shout in joy. I think it'd be great. I think that would be a fantastic move. I doubt it because we haven't gotten any of that kind of prep. Like we, 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 you know. We only saw Bjorn as a solo operator um, back in the second film, so I, I, that doesn't lead me to suspect they're going to add uh, extra bears. Um, so I'll be very surprised, but I think that would be... I, I, would, I would have no problems with him adding back the army of bears. Um, um, Michael uh, Lucero is asking about, uh, uh, you know, are we going to have the two different armies of orcs? Are we going to get the Dol Guldur orcs and the Misty Mountain orcs coming in? It would be interesting if we got the Misty Mountain goblins um, sort of coming in for vengeance uh, for the death of the Great Goblin. Um, that I mean, again, that would be, in a sense, following the following the book script. I don't know how that would come... I, I'm not sure how that would be worked. I don't know... Um, like what kind? I mean, would would we suspect no, um, no communication? You know, you know, no no coordination between the two goblin armies. Who's commanding the other goblin army? Nobody seems to be left um, to command them. It seems to me a little unlikely for these reasons. But um, yeah. Yeah, and and Erica, I agree with you. Erica Smith was adding that not only did we not get other bears, um, uh, Jackson was emphasizing very strongly how Bjorn is the only one left. You know how he is—he's the last of his kind. Um, so I agree. Although Erica, I was assuming in the book that the other bears were normal bears um, and not were bears as uh, as Bjorn is. Um, nevertheless, I, I I I do agree. Not only did we not see any bears, we got emphasis upon Bjorn's solitude. Um, so, so that that is another reason why I would suspect we're not going to see an army. That's true, and they, and so that would contradict what they set up earlier in the film, unless they took the time to explain. Oh no, these are these are just normal bears. normal bears. Yeah, normal bears. Um, yeah. Well, maybe we'll have Bilbo giving the play by play. You know. Yeah. Be... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so yeah. I anyway. I I'm 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 kind of. <sighs> But moving on from the vexed issue of the definite article, um, I uh, and and it the use of the definite article, my my, I I keep just wanting to parody that. I mean, I keep referring to the title of the movie uh, as you know, like 
the battle of five of the armies is is <laughs> how I tend to, how I tend to talk about it. Uh, but anyway, uh, so it, 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 the definite article is what makes me want to parody the title of the film. But I, I, I but I would want to just to not lose sight of the bigger picture here. I think it's a bad title. I'm disappointed by the title. Yeah. Because well, what I, does it mean about the story? I mean, it, it certainly changes the focus, doesn't it? It does change the focus, and I just it, it's now and if, and and if you read their interviews where they talked explained it, it's not even just the film makes us think they changed the focus. Like in his in his um, Facebook note, Peter Jackson explicitly says. Oh, we're changing the title because the focus of the movie is the battle. So we thought, right. you know. And, you know, that was always inevitable. I mean, we always knew that the Battle of Five Armies was going to be the primary thing that happened in this film. Like, that's that makes perfect sense, you know, and, and I have no problems with that. Um and, you know, in some ways people, you know, some some people have been responding by saying, well, it makes some sense to change the title of the film to the thing which is going to be sort of the centerpiece of the film. But I disagree. That's a bad way to title a film. Uh, you know, it, you're losing the opportunity. A title is, a, is, a, is an excellent opportunity to, like, convey something to your audience about the film. You don't just want to label it with a thing that takes up the most screen time. Well, plus, in my mind now, they ought to just take the Hobbit off the front of it. They call it Middle Earth, colon, the Battle of the Five Armies, because it's it's not about the Hobbit anymore. Well, I don't, I mean, it is. I don't know if I can agree with that completely. I mean, certainly the focus of the book, sh- I mean, again, we talked last time about the shift in the focus of the book and how, um, you know, in some ways I would almost say this seems to follow the shift in the focus of the book. Um, the book certainly does culminate in the Battle of Five Armies and the back again part of the, I mean, certainly even if you look at the Hobbit, you know, the published Hobbit, and you say the subtitle of this is there and back again, you can equally say of the book, well, yeah, it's 18 chapters of there and one chapter of back again. You know, I mean, the 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 the, the back again, it doesn't get a lot of time. You know, it's 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 a really quick trip back. But but I, th- but I think the time you know, that we do get, I mean, like the change in Bilbo's song, for example, sure. is very evocative. Sure. You know, you do definitely get this character arc thing. I just have a hard time believing we're going to really see that. In well, the- that's the open question. Now, I mean, I don't think that either the change in the title or them or the, you know, Peter Jackson and the actors saying the Battle of Five Armies is the main thing that happens in the film. I don't think either one of those things proves that we're not going to get any back again at all. Um Right. But what if we're going to get the auction? That's the important it, part. Are we going to get yeah. the auction? That is an important yeah, question. I mean, that's a that, that's a dead certainty we will have the auction. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> and recall that's where we're opening the movie too, by the way. With the auction, of course. Absolutely. With yeah, the that's auction? that's, oh, um, that's right. pretty much a given. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um but it but it, it I agree with you Corey, that it it, it, it Brianna made the point why they Following the same logic, they should have relabeled the um, the the third Lord of the Rings film, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Yeah, they should have relabeled the second film, um, the Battle, Battle of, of Helm's uh, Deep. Of the Hornbird. Yeah, the right. Battle, Battle of Helm's Deep. Deep. Yeah, Not the Hornbird. Of course. Yeah, they should uh, still keep it wrong. <laughs> no, no, it just it, it kind of it's sort of it's one of those things that as like when we we discuss it and. You know, we try to be positive and optimistic, and we, we, you know, like, try not to be jerks who are like, oh, these filmmakers don't know what they're doing, they don't understand the story. But when they do stuff like this, it makes me feel like that. It makes me feel like, 
boy, these guys, they just don't understand the story at all, apparently. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, well, obviously the film should be labeled after the thing that's on the screen the most, which is the, which is the, which is the battle of the five armies. And that's really what the focus of this film is and the whole story. And it's like, and it just kind of confirms your worst suspicions. These guys are just making, they're just trying to make these giant flashy action films with lots of special effects. And, you know, and- why, they should have called the second film, um, the, the Hobbit running around with a dragon in a mouth. <laughs> the golden statue, killing, right. trying to kill Smaug. <laughs> trying to kill Smaug. Yeah, trying I mean, to kill Smaug. Exactly. It's it's um, it is really hard to um, it's really hard to sympathize. But the thing is, the the thing that frustrates me about it is that Jackson has never done this. You know, I mean, this yeah. is. Uh, it, it, I wasn't a huge fan of the desolation of Smaug. I thought that that was um, that that was a pretty good title. I was disappointed. It's one of the reasons I was really disappointed when Smaug didn't die in the second film because I was really hoping that you know he that we'd get a play on the irony of um, you know of of uh, you know that the the desolation of Smaug refers to you know the desolation that Smaug has made of the Lonely Mountain and of its environs. Um, but then you know, of course, we were also getting you know the desolation of Smaug himself and uh and you know the way in which that can also be playing on the growing dragon sickness of Thorin if we're seeing that going all all all, all these things you know were things that um um uh were were things in play you know concepts in play that the title really really invoked um I like that. You know, an unexpected journey, I was fine with that. It wasn't, it's not brilliant. But again, what it does is it sort of points, you know, it it doesn't just describe the thing, you know, it doesn't just describe the, you know, like the meeting at Bag End or, you know, any one particular incident in the book, but that, or, you know, in the film, but the choice to make, the choice to make the Battle of Five Armies the title um, and I still just can't get myself to say it wrong. Um, no, but anyhow, the choice of making the battle of five armies, the title, it just, it shows Dave, as you're saying, it shows a tone deafness that strikes me as really unusual. It's, it's why I'm half wondering, um, whether this change was, a was, a um, was, I, was a studio a thing. I don't know. Yeah, I have a feeling it was a studio thing. I, I, to give to give the filmmaker some credit, this this sounds like the kind of thing that um, that a studio exec would say. Isn't there a huge battle in this? Uh, y- yeah. Well, why aren't we advertising that? We need to get people into the theaters. Right. You know, right. Um, it, 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 it does. You know, this, do, this does also. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Trish. Well, I was I was just gonna I was gonna add to this the thing that you know Corey has actually kind of railed against, uh, which is the critic piece of you know orienting the movie toward a particular demographic. Mm-hmm. But gosh, you know their name change kind of supports that thought uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. that it really is being oriented toward a particular demographic. I mean, this is definitely this this is not the name of a date flick, really. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's not. And and I don't know. Like I said, my main disappointment is just that it is it is uninventive, you know, and it doesn't now, th- though, as I also said, I mean, as I've been saying on Twitter and everything else, I, I, I agree. I absolutely agree that there and back again was a bad title for the third film. That is an overarching title. Um, 
How it's, dare it's, you, sir? It was a bad title for the third film. It was. I'm not saying it was a bad. It's a bad title for the book. I'm saying the bad Why? title for the film. They should have called it just back again. Back again. Why not? Yeah, that would be better. At least more descriptive. Hey, they would have they would have keyed off of myth, last year's myth moods. Exactly. Yeah. Been. Yeah. They would have had to pay us royalties, but I don't mind. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. No. The um, it, it, no. The thing is. Like I said, there and back again, I think was a bad title because they were already there. You know, I mean, to, to, the implications of there and back again, it just it does not describe the part of the oh, story. See, no, I like that we're Rob, Robert's suggestion is the clouds burst. That would have been a good. That's a good uh, title, Robert. Like that's an that. excellent title. I very like. I, I very much like that. The clouds burst. I'm um, using that chapter title as the title. Um, that would have been cool. <laughs> Kate's The Hobbit, the very last movie. We could call it the very last Middle Earth movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Except, uh, well, we'll see. Um, I, I have one. I have one more complaint. Um, okay. Uh, which is which is a nitpicky thing, but it is. Uh, it is a little the 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 effect of it, and which may well also have been the intention. Uh, which I won't get into because God, God forbid I should start performing crit fic. But, um, but the effect I think is that it's going to diminish the 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 discatastrophic and eucatastrophic uh, events of the battle mm-hmm. because it it sort of public. I mean, anybody who's read the anybody who knows anything about the films or who even bothered to read an article would know that there's going to be a battle and it's going to be good guys and bad guys and they'll probably even get some sense of the narrative flow of it. But uh, but it does sort of reduce for people who haven't read the books the the the, the sort of the you know first the dread of um, the 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 tension of the siege because people are going to be sitting there saying well where are the goblins you know why are we bothered why are these people arguing st- sitting outside the mountain where's the, aren't there goblins coming isn't Sauron's army marching on them then uh, they'll show up and start winning and people will be like tapping their feet thinking well okay where are the eagles and they're probably doing that anyway since that since that's the popular popular imagination now uh, thinks Tolkien is synonymous with Deus ex machina right right, right. But, but I think it, you know that that's a key those are key elements of the of the the the, the book um, you know the the fact that the arrival of the goblin army uh, allows the good guys to reunite and then and then the eagles save them. And now people are just going to go into the film sort of already, you know, primed, expecting those things to happen. Right. Right. Though, I mean, of course, yeah, right. it's one of the issues of doing an adaptation of a classic book like this is that that kind of anticipation is inescapable. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, one of the one of the challenges, I think, clearly in doing a film adaptation at all is dealing with that you know in because within the story that is to the characters on screen many of things these things are still going to emerge as a surprise but of course there's really no reason for them to anticipate that at least for the majority of film goers they too are going to be equally you know there'll always be some people who have never read the books who see the films but um but still it's not like there's going to be a secret reveal that you're expecting everybody to reel back and gasp that, you know, because they weren't expecting it. Like the death of the dragon. I mean, we talked about this before. Everybody knows the dragon's going to die. Um, it's not a, it's not a secret what's going to happen in Lake town. So the question is, how do they, how do they build towards the inevitable without it, 
you know, and, and, and really not just overcome that as an obstacle, but really take advantage of that, you know, really sort of, because you can do that, you know, you can, you can play on the anticipation rather than, um, trying to invoke surprise. But, um, but I agree that the, the, the one thing that I find, um, well, again, it's, I, I'm sort of back to the definite article. When you say the battle of the five armies, you're inviting people to to count in advance, you know, to be ticking off on their fingers. You know, okay, that's army number mm-hmm. one. That's army number two. Where's army number five? Um, whereas the description, without the definite article, the battle of five armies, what it is in the book is merely a description after the fact of what happened. You know, this was a mm-hmm. battle in which it ended up that five armies ended up conflicting with each other. And so it shall be called the battle of five armies, not the battle of the five armies, as if these five particular armies had been heading on this collision course inescapably the whole time. Though again, in, from one way of looking at it, that is the situation in the film, right? I, although the identity of the armies is, as, as I said at the beginning, slightly uncertain. Nevertheless, um, the fact that five armies are going to come together is no longer a thing which just sort of happened unexpectedly and is named afterwards. Now they're, you know, on the part of the people, certainly the people who are familiar with the books coming to the film, they are going to be, no matter what the film is called, they are going to be ticking off on their fingers the five armies that are coming in and counting them and anticipating them. So in some, ex- so so wait, yeah, did, did, did I just accidentally back into an apology for the for the for the definite <laughs> article? Hang on a second. Wait, I have, I have to. I, l- 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 let me pause while I reexamine my life here for a second. I don't know what happened. Whoa. By the way, as Corey is reexamining his life, I just want to say to those of you listening to this as an audio recording, I want to explain something. Corey's been away on vacation, has not been doing any course lecturing, has not been doing any Mythgard Academy, and so he's yeah. been missing talking to us. So this is <laughs> why we're a half an hour into Rivals in the Dark and have not even started to talk about the episode yet. Plus, the I think Dave and first. I are feeling very, we're very mellow. We're feeling very mellow and chatty today. So just yeah. enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the people that are here live already know that we've talked previous to going live for a long time. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're about, having a about things, today. about things even less related. Well, exactly. Yes, exactly. exactly. Okay, but you know, this was a big deal. This was this this you know the news yeah. of the changing of the title is a big deal, uh, and uh, you know we've been well, and and you know yeah. the thing is the thing is. Uh, we're 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 swiftly approaching the end of this, you know, at least of the foreseeable future of um, the experience of them making these films, and uh, and we need to look for as many opportunities as we can to complain. It's true. We need to maximize our complaining. I mean, of course. As evidenced by reactions to the Lord of the Rings films, there's no statute of limitations on complaining. We can carry on complaining for decades to come. Uh, yeah. But uh, but you're right; it's not the same as complaining in the moment, uh, you know. And and uh, um, you know, yeah, I do have grousing about it on Twitter. Thing, by the way. Which actually you made me think of it just now because I was watching Big Bang Theory last night and they were doing a thing on Star Wars and complaining about the Phantom Menace and I thought about that because there's also no statute of limitations on complaining about right. the Phantom, Phantom Menace either. Right. But I did want to say that, um, and I already put this up on, on, on the Facebook page, but Andy Serkis has been cast in the new Star Wars. I saw that. Does anyone yeah. know what he's doing? No, I mean, I'm going to be interested to see what 
size of a role he's actually got. They did him. They did a, one of the actors from Weasley, from one of the Weasley brothers from oh, okay. Harry Potter. And, of course, J.J. Abrams, who does the Star Trek movies, is doing the director. So they're covering their fan base really well. Right. Right. pre-movie you know they've already got like a guaranteed attendance just from those castings <laughs> yeah 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 no, it's yeah i'm gonna be curious to know what kind of role he's got they didn't actually say if it was a large role small role whatever but they made a real big deal out of the fact that he didn't cast yeah no needless to say that really jumped out of me when i saw the cast list posted i missed the weasley brother but i, I yeah uh, one of the i i didn't recognize his the actor's name but they said he was bill weasley in in the harry potter movie oh so. bill weasley okay okay oh. interesting um no i totally missed that but okay all right let us move on to the actual subject of today's episode so today we are talking about your sound effects we're talking about the Siege of the Lonely Mountain, uh, and we want to focus on the Lake Town view. So let's start by looking at immediately post-destruction of Lake Town by Smaug. So the dragon is... De- we're assuming the dragon is dead. We're assuming Lake Town is destroyed. Um, my first question is, are we going to get... How closely are we going to get a recapitulation of the scene that we get in the book? So we have the, 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 the refugees of Lake Town huddling on the shore... Um, we have uh, the master there, but in disgrace. And we have, you know, oh, we would make Bard King. We have the dramatic emergence of Bard from the water. I cannot imagine we're not going to do that in the film. I mean, that's like one of the one of the most obvious made-for-screen moments, uh, you know, in, in, in The Hobbit. Um, is the whole, uh, uh, you know dramatic in the middle of the conversation bard uh you know comes out of you know wet and bedraggled bard comes out of the water bard was not killed um you know so are are we going to get that and then um the you know we will have king bard and you know they acclaim they want to acclaim him king and uh and then the then of course we get the master diverting the crowd um in and drawing their ire against the dwarves and thereby setting aside their down with money bags up with the bowmen um, uh, language that they're, that they're using. So there are two different elements of this that I, that I'm really interested to, to, to see in the film. First of all, are we going to get Bard acclaimed King? You know, is one of the consequences of the, of this going to be Bard achieving a kind of a Royal stature? And then what is the relationship between Bard and the Master of Lake Town going to look like in the aftermath? Um, first of all, general question, do you guys think the Master is going to play a prominent role in film three? Would you expect him to kind of fade out, or would you expect him to play a significantly enhanced role um, in film three that is enhanced compared to the role he plays in the film in the book? Because remember, in the book, he vanishes pretty much. After that right. point, after that conversation, you know, when once the men of Lake Town get in motion and start heading towards the mountain, the master is never heard from again except after the fact to describe his uh, running off and dying. Um, would you expect the master of Lake Town to stick around and do more in the third film? No clue. No clue. I'm kind of thinking. I, I think now. we'll see him be more. Um, I think there will be more interaction with him, like between Bard and and uh, with the men in Lake Town before they take off for the mountain. 
but I'm not expecting him to go off to the mountain. That'll be a good uh, conundrum, actually, for you and Laura. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we'll see more of him be blustery or whatever he does in Lake Town, but I, I bet you he doesn't go off to the mountain with them. Um, yeah, you know, see, it's interesting because I can see both sides of this. But the 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 the, the things that I'm torn between um, were all of them just said by several of our live listeners. Um, uh, Scott Hill, by the way, hi Scott. Uh, Scott was a. a, a, a college friend of mine. Um, uh, Scott says the master will be an obstacle to Bard presumably before the dragon is dead, right. maybe not afterwards. Um, that does make sense to me, you know, that, that we're, you know, it's the stature of the master of Lake Town as he was depicted in the second film. It's hard to see that guy leading an army. You know, it's hard to see the people following him. Um, I mean, he seems like such a venial kind of bureaucrat that it's hard to see him engaged in any kind of military activity. Um, so I agree. And then especially once we have Bard acclaimed as the Dragon Slayer, it's really hard. And he, the Master, seems to have invested so much um, in being publicly anti-Bard, you know, that it seems kind of hard for him to maintain any kind of stature. But at the, at the same time, I agree with Yana. I can't believe Stephen Fry is going to disappear like yeah. that. <laughs> Those well, are the two things noted, I keep going back and forth on. People have noted that Alfred, I guess, figures prominently in some of the posters with the dagger in his hand. So right. we're wondering, hmm. you know, we wonder about that. I mean, that could mean that he also is the person who offs the master. I don't know. Well, yeah, you wonder. I mean, that seems like so obvious. I mean, people have already been making the worm tongue Alfred connection from yeah. the beginning. That would be seem like such an obvious recapitulation of that motif that I, I, I don't even know why we'd do it. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I. I, I do agree that was weird. I mean, I expected Alfred to be stabbing somebody. He never did stab anybody in the back, either either literally, right. literally or figuratively. So I don't, I don't really, I, I never got that. Um, but it's true, we were given that. You know, are are we going to get maybe even a murderous attempt on Bard? That would be easy to imagine. You know, the master of Lake Town saying, okay, now that Bard has killed the dragon, he is obviously, like, I can't just throw him in prison anymore. Um you know, we just need to off him. If if somebody stabs Bard in the back and he just disappears and is never heard from again, then maybe I could retain control of the people. But it would seem to be the only way in which the master of Lake Town could really retain his control over the people um, after Bard has killed the dragon. So, you know, maybe that is a kind of foreshadowing um, that we are going to see the master actually attempt to, to murder, to have him killed. Um, but... But even if that happens, again, my assumption would be that would be a brief sort of conflict. If the Master tries to get Bard killed, which presumably will not work, um, then I assume the Master gets run out of town or something as a consequence of that. Then basically, I don't see the Master hanging around, um, you know, for the rest of the time. You know, for, you know, during the Siege of the Lonely Mountain. I can't see him still being there. Right. Um, but I could see, yeah, I could see him, um, like you say, you know, before the dragon trying to do something, or actually, I guess we've, we've talked about that as a riddle, right? Carrying on the table even, but I would think that after the dragon's death, he would at least try, even if, you know, futilely to maintain some control or some precedence over Bard yeah. and then fail at that. And maybe he slinks off or, or, you know, he very well may end up, you know, having some kind of similar, uh, ending to what's in the book. 
Yeah, that I can easily see. But but again, if he's going to end like he is in the book, he would almost have to stick around until the end because he has to be able that's to true. be around to confiscate. Um, oh, that's true. I mean, yeah. remember the implication in the book is that he remains the master of Lake Town. Um, that's right. That Bard goes on to refound Dale, and and the master of Lake Town remains the master of Lake Town, but he absconds with a bunch of the money that Bard sends him right. uh, in order to. Um, in order to to restore Lake Town, um, and by the way, that makes today officially a good day because I was able to use the word abscond in a sentence. That's one of my standards, uh, actually. Uh, but anyway, you don't get very many opportunities. To... No, I you know they come up uh, they come up as frequently as I can arrange them, but uh, it's still not every single day, and so therefore that makes today a good day. Uh, okay, um, I'm making a note of that on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, so anyway, again, if he's going to run off with gold, that there's got to be gold to be had, and that can only be had after the Lonely Mountains. So because we know Lake Town is poor it's not like he's going to run off with the treasury of lake town what treasury of lake town i mean the place is a dump so um uh he's he's unless he's unless he's got a little hoard of his own possibly possibly taxes and whatnot yeah i mean that's that 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 that's certainly conceivable but again even there i mean you know we would see him you know loading his you know coffers onto a boat you know in fleeing lake town um but even that would seem really anticlimactic if he like gets out his personal stash, puts it on a boat, and takes off with it. Um, that I would I'd consider that pretty pretty anticlimactic. Well, now here's another question though: Do we have the master of Lake Town conspiring with anybody else? I'm going to go out on a limb and say he does not probably conspire with Sauron and the orcs. Um, that is conceivable but seems really unlikely um but maybe with the elven king um you know he was the Uh, one who was wanting to be all conciliatory with the elven king um that's a good point so both of them would be you know both of them wouldn't think twice about betraying the other if they made uh, some kind of a pact yeah i mean thranduil wouldn't think twice because it's only a man and of course the master is not to be trusted anyway right right Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But um, what now? Shifting though to Bard for a second. Bard, you know, we'll remember that in the book, it's the master who turns the people against Thorin. Bard is sympathetic. You know, Bard says, uh, you know, Thorin is undoubtedly, de- you know, you're wasting your your hatred on those dwarves as if they stirred the dragon up against you deliberately. Um, you know, you're wasting your time. Thorin is almost certainly dead. So you know. So don't be silly. But of course, in the second film, Bard was setting up the, you know, if you go to that mountain, something terrible is going to happen and it's going to be all your fault. So, you know, Bard leading the, it was Thorin's fault, you know, down with Thorin Oakenshield who brought this upon us has been strongly set up for us in the second film. So it seems to me likely that Bard, upon surviving, is going to say, you know, we told, you know, I told, I warned Thorin that um, if he went to the, you know, that he had no right to enter that mountain because if he did, as was prophesied, destruction would come upon Lake Town. And now it's happened. And now I'm really ticked off. 
uh, and like I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to demand, you know, and I'm going to get, you know, goal. I'm going to demand, you know, uh, I'm going to make demands, and I'm a, and I'm and I'm, you know, in a in a in a harsh negotiating mood because I, uh, you know, I feel that my, my dire warnings, which were not heeded, were fully justified. That kind of dynamic seems a little inescapable. So, are, do you guys think we're going to see Bard, you know, rallying the people? Into into anti, you know, that him being the vo- the spokesperson of the anti-Thorin sentiment among the people of Lake Town. It certainly seems possible because he, you know, they they really played up his his confrontation with them yeah. in Desolation of Smile, yeah. you know, beyond what was in the book. Like he he was he was anti them going to the mountain and claimed they had no right. Uh, and then of course the dragon attack. Uh, will exactly um, uh, will it, you know it, it proved his point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could see that on the other you know I, I'm sort of of two minds. I could see he certainly they certainly set that up for a, a confrontation or a vociferous disagreement between uh, Thorin and the dwarves and Bard and the and the people of Lake Town. But at the same time, he just doesn't seem like the get up an army and go march to take treasure from people. But then again, neither did the bard in the book. So, And, and I guess part of the story of, of this part of the book and this film is is that everybody kind of behaves, you know, that it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a very realistic telling of how war happens, right? Right. That, mm-hmm. that, you know, people just kind of get swept up in events and, and end up taking sides and move in directions that, that they that almost seem out of character for them. So... So yeah, I I kind of think that's probably probably going to be part of it, and and of course the the Thranduil that we have in the film is not, he's not exact. It's really hard to imagine him being the guy that says you know well long shall I tarry <laughs> yes um, so 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 whatever inclination Bard has to go and and try to get what what's his uh, will I'm sure only be encouraged by this Thranduil. Yeah. Now I. I... Kate Neville is almost certainly correct, I think, when she says, you know, the book bard says that the dwarves are probably dead. She says, uh, you know, she asks, will the film bard think so too? That does seem likely. You know, some of our conversations about this have almost assumed that, you know, people like Feely and Keeley, for instance, you know, we, we, we've been asking, are they going to go back to the mountain? What reason do they have to think that Thorne and the others are still alive? I mean, the obvious assumption is that Smaug has killed all of them before he came down to Lake Town, right? So you've got to think that the, that everybody is going to be assuming that Thorne is dead. And therefore, I would suspect um, Bard's ire against Thorne. I would expect him to be following up his anger and his wrathful predictions from film two with much greater wrath um, in recriminating Thorin for bringing about the disaster that he that he in fact predicted, um, especially if one or one or more of his children have died. Exactly, especially yeah. if we get the death of his daughters or yeah. one of his daughters. Um, at least we know Bane's going to live. But anyway, um, uh, excuse me, Bane. Uh, I apologize for mispronouncing his name, um, but uh, <laughs> well, you've been you've been mispronouncing the dragon's name all this time too. It's really Schmaug. It's, it's really Schmaug. No, it's really Schma- Schma- no Schmaug. 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 Yeah, see. that's how Jackson says it. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I apologize <laughs> for that. Anyway, so um, the point is, 
clearly that's going to break out when he's confronted with Thorin, right? So, uh, so if we assume they're saying, hey, let's go get some gold, um, the master could be simply trying to hang out, um, sort of lurking around in order to sort of get his hands on some of the gold when they get there, or hoping he'll be able to sort of run off with it or or get up there and claim the gold and then have Bard killed. Like, it doesn't have to happen right away. Um, he can permit Bard to sort of take the official leadership role and then have him killed later on. Um, but, uh, but, I mean, it is true that we... we I, I think it's likely that everyone is going to be assuming that Thorin is already dead. And so therefore the real question is who's going to claim the gold and who's going to lead them in claiming the gold. Um, Oh, well that, you know, actually I just thought of that too, that Feely would step forward and say, I have right. I am now King under the mountain. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you've got to think that Feely and Keely in Lake town, assuming they're still alive, which I am, um, are thinking, Hey, um, Feely's king now, right? right? Um, because that's one of the remarkable features of this whole separation of the dwarven party thing is that now, um, we have a situation where the, you know, like the heir has been separated from the king, so they're not all going to be killed at one time. Um, uh, you know, oh, that's the, true. And do you, I wonder if there could be sort of a, like, a, I hadn't even thought about that. Maybe that'll be part of the plan of the 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 people of Lake Town and, and the elves, to go and install, uh, uh, install him as king, as a friendly king. They're like, oh, well, uh, let's take you up to the mountain and install you as king, and then you can give us our gold. Right, right. Um yeah, yeah, I mean... It's... And that might even be the dispute. They might get up there and find, oh, oh, Thorin, you're not dead. Well, doesn't matter. We have our own <laughs> king under the mountain. There's going to be a, a competing, dueling kings under the mountain. Yeah, and Feely presumably wouldn't, like, put himself in conflict with Thorin once he knows Thorin's alive. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it does create that situation and, and, and does invite... You know, we've been talking about, you know, are Feely and Keely gonna, um, you know, and, and, and the other dwarves, but Feely and Keely are obviously the ones that matter most for dynastic purposes here. Are Feely and Keely going to return to the, you know, are they going to sneak off and return to the mountain on their own or are they going to be held as hostages? But we didn't ever consider this, you know, are they going to be set up as heirs? Um, and will, you know, Bard or the master or even Thranduil, um, sort of desire to you know sort of set them up as puppets or something I don't know hmm. I don't know um yeah maybe I, I I actually I really like um I really like um both Yana and Gerald's suggestions here um maybe they make a deal maybe like they sit down with Feely everybody including Feely believing that he's now king under the mountain and they make a deal. Yeah. You know, they say, okay, you know, I, Feely says, okay, as king under the mountain, I agree, uh, you know, to give you this portion of the treasure. And then they get up there and Thorin's like, heck no, I didn't agree to any such thing. And Feely's like, uh, you know, I kind of made this agreement and they we kind of should do this. And this is obviously the right thing to do. And Thorin's like, shut up. So, you know, that, that, um, 
that would be an interesting angle. Yeah, and I, I could see. I could see how eventually, if if he feels like Thorin's behavior is bad or Thorin's gone off the rails, he might decide that he's a better king under the mountain. So, he, so even though I agree, sort of initially he wouldn't defy Thorin. He, oh, oh, you're still alive. Okay, well you're king. Maybe he might eventually conclude, no, no, you're a crappy king under the mountain. I'm the true king under the mountain. Right. I mean, it's still hard for me to see himself like actually attempting to depose Thorin, but but speaking against him, I could definitely see. I yeah. mean, again, that's been set up, right? He's already done that. He has already essentially said to Thorin, dude, you're not being really kingly enough. You know, um, a king's, you know, a, um, Thorin told him that he has to start thinking like a king, and Feely's essential response was, yeah, a king doesn't leave his people behind, uncle. You know, um, and so Feely, in staying with his brother and in staying with the others, has already begun the process of showing up Thorin as to like how a real king under the mountain would act. So, um, so yeah, that I could see. That I could see Keely basically bristling and saying, "Okay, you know, uh, I was only I only thought I was king under the mountain for like uh, you know eighteen hours, but I totally was a better king under the mountain than you're being." Um, yeah. Well, back to the other thing, which is if they do make an agreement with with Feely, then I could totally see Bard and or Thranduil then getting to the mountain and saying, "We Thorn, we expect you Thorn to abide by the agreement right. we made with your heir." Right. Right. Exactly. Which would be a perfect reason to go to war. Right. Because of course he would say no. Right. Right. Exactly. And you know, as and, and Scott points out that uh, you know, the, if especially if Thorin is is acting crazy, you know, I mean, that, that, that gives, I mean, even again, think about the book, think about the conversation between Bilbo and Bomber, you know, they're recognizing that Thorin is, you know, going a little far, you know, that Thorin is, is not, you know, they, they, all the dwarves hold with Thorin and they don't break ranks, but Bomber at least sort of acknowledges, you know, this is, suboptimal you know the way that thorn is being is not awesome and and um so to 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 go to go further in that direction um and to have feeling kiwi basically saying you know not just i disagree with you in principle or like you know i would do something differently than what you're doing if i were king under the mountain but rather um you know, uh, Thorin is like non compass mentis at this point. You know, he's, you know, yeah. he's, we, we need to sort of step in. It's possible. It's possible. Hmm. Um, you know, Pete is asking if it could go the other direction. Uh, Pete Richard says, uh, you know, do we think that Fiwi and Kiwi could themselves get a touch of dragon sickness and say, screw you, uncle, you left us behind in Lake Town? You know, and and really actually try to see something for themselves. You know, I kind of wonder. I do wonder if a sharp division among the dwarves might be a way in which they do emphasize the whole dragon sickness angle. You know, the way in which... um, Because remember, and that I actually, in many ways, I would find this a very attractive thing. Because one of the primary... You know, people... It's too easy to think of dragon sickness as merely being obsession with gold. It's not just obsession with gold. One of the things that I think you see pretty clearly in the book when you look closely is that what Smaug actually does is not just get people focused on gold, but get them focused on themselves exclusively and to divide them from others. Um, 
his when he when Smaug starts working on Bilbo, he's trying to turn Bilbo against the dwarves and convince Bilbo that the dwarves are going to turn on him. So, um, I think it's it's um, it seems to me pretty um, pretty suggest you know it, it would seem to me in keeping with the way that dragon sickness is depicted in the book um, that th- we begin to see very overt divisions in the ranks um, and having there be sort of Feely and Keely on the one side and maybe Bofor holding with them and then you've got Thorin on the other side and Dwalin and some of the others holding with him and then you've got probably Balin being sort of neutral and doing a lot of like sighing and shaking his head you know looking on all this and trying to be a mediator I can easily see that happening and I think that that would be a really interesting way thematically to draw attention to um to this sort of other nature of dragon sickness, the, 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 the this other, this, this other consequence. And then, so then you have Balin and Bilbo, presumably trying to bridge the gap. And this could be, it could be the division among the dwarves as much as the looming potential conflict between the dwarves and the lake men and, uh, and, and the wood elves that leads Bilbo to try to take a radical step, um, to, you know, smooth things over. What about Toriel? How do you see Toriel fitting into this picture? I'm um, I'm really interested to think about uh, what what might be the role of Legolas and Toriel. Um, mm-hmm. I mentioned this in the email yesterday that uh, I kind of wonder um, if they're not going to be off sort of doing their own thing as opposed to marching with Randuls and Bard. Um, uh, they might be off either ahead doing reconnaissance, or, or maybe they even they just never even meet up with the army until the end. They they sort of follow their own plot line for right. the first part of the film. Right. Uh, they're, they're, certainly, they're already doing that now. Um, and I wonder if maybe they'll take some of the dwarves with them. Um, I I just I'm I you know I I'm kind of hung up on this idea of there being this extra faction at the siege. The, right. Sort of the the and maybe it's not all the dwarves, but at least some of the dwarves plus uh, some of the leftover dwarves plus Toriel and Legolas being sort of the I'm um, broadcasting the, guys the, the third faction of mediators who probably eventually will sort of uh, you know the, which will also include Bilbo and Gandalf. Right, um, right. But I don't know what the heck they'll be doing. Uh, yes, and and it's hard to. I don't. I don't think. I don't think Tariel's going to leave Lake Town while the dragon's attacking. I think she's going to stay there. And and I. And of course, who knows? Is Legolas going to come back, or is he going to be? Maybe Tariel and Legolas are split. I don't know. It's hard to imagine. But I. I like the idea of them having them not just sort of. The scenes that they have on screen not just being them walking along with Randuul, but them being off doing something else, having a different set of experiences so that when, when the siege happens, they bring a different point of view. Um, they're not just on Randuul's side. The, yeah. I feel like the longer they're apart from him, the, the higher probability there is that they're going to uh, defy him. Yeah, yeah. I... Um... <sighs> It seems to me that this is exactly the question I keep coming back to too. I also, it seems to me very natural that that at least Toriel and probably Legolas will be off doing their own thing. But the question I keep coming back to is, what thing exactly are they going to be off doing? Um, I don't know. I I don't know. 
the only that's why I think I suggested before the only thing I can think of is like are we going to get secret like you know missions to the lonely mountain you know are we going to get like some kind of communication between Kiwi and Torio um, in the Lonely Mountain, like them, the two of them trying to bridge the gap. And I'm not suggesting like steamy midnight trysts or anything. I just mean like the two of them actually, you know, Kiwi going into the mountain and him wanting to communicate, you know, and, and, and you know, the two of them communicating with each other, um, wanting to work something out as presumably neither one of them wants to be in battle against each other. Um, and they would also presumably both be in a place where they believe that, you know, some kind of peace could be established between the elves and the dwarves. Um, so are we going to see them trying to work together, which would mean working against Thorin? Um, of course, um, uh, Gabrielle is reminding us that um, Kiwi's friendship with the elf is also going to cause more issues with Thorin. Um, so, you know, adding to all those other things, it's beginning, at least in the way we're talking ourselves around to it here, it's beginning to seem almost inescapable that there's going to be a serious division among the dwarves. Um, ultimately, as a consequence of this division, this this splitting up, um, you know, of their party. But uh, Which would happen yeah. anyway, even if Thorin wasn't going bonkers. Right. But add to that the fact that Thorin's going bonkers, and then it's almost guaranteed, it seems like, at least the way path we're going down. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Because, um, yeah, it's hard for me to see. I don't know what else she has to do, Toriel, what else she has to do. Like, what other kind of missions or whatever, uh, scouting? I don't know. You know, is she going to... Um, don't know. No idea. No idea what Toriel has to do with herself. Um, if it isn't being there at the Lonely Mountain. Um, but but this actually gets to, you know, we've been sort of skipping over the other question, which is, act, which is ultimately, actually, a transition to our riddle, which is, where is Thranduil in all this, and how are the men of Lake Town going to be connected with Thranduil? My first question is, are we going to get, are we going to get Thranduil turning aside and coming to the aid of the men of the lake just because they need help. Are we going to get the mission of mercy from Thranduil and his army to the men of Lake Town? Um, this is a major factor, I think, in the book. It's one of the things which clearly indicates that the elves are, in fact, good people. If we didn't have that, remember, you know, if you don't have the Lord of the Rings, you've never met Galadriel. You've, you know, you've barely met Elrond. You, you know, we met Elrond back in chapter three, but we don't really know much about the elves. And what we learned about the elves in chapter three of The Hobbit, if all we have is The Hobbit, what we learned about the elves in chapter three of The Hobbit is that they're a little bit crazy. You know, they sing these bizarre songs and, uh, I mean, they're not real impressive, when we meet them in chapter three, um, or rather we get both things at once, right? We see the elves being silly, but we also see, we also hear about the stories of Gondolin, you know? So we hear about ancient wars between the, 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 the goblins and the, and the elves, but we also see the elves singing ridiculous songs. That's what we know about elves until we meet the wood elves and they're taking Thorin prisoner and holding him in the dungeon and they're 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 acting suspiciously and overreacting to the dwarves, um, you know when they when they meet them and throwing them in 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 the dungeon not exactly without trial but 
without much great justification, hey, and that's hey, all we hey, knew hey, of them. Those were the those were the guest suites. Sorry, the guest, the beautifully decorated guest suites with bars. With, uh, with the locks on the outside. With attractive <laughs> bars. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, again, the, um, only, the only obvious indication that we get that the elves are... You know, and then, of course, we see the elven king set off to loot the mountain. You know, he hears about the, the, the death of the dragon and the probable death of Thorin, and his immediate thought is, it's an ill wind that blows no one any good, right? He's like, well, you know, I can make capital off of this anyway. It's kind of too bad that Lake Town was destroyed and that Thorin's dead now, but um, there's all that gold. I think I'll get me some, you know? I mean, and so, you know, he's just looting. I mean, it's a completely profiteering mission on the part of the elves, um, and the fact that they're bringing their army suggests that they're expecting other people to show up and try to loot the mountain too, and they're prepared to fight them off. It's not an attractive picture. Again, we we all have associations with Tolkien's elves that we bring to the Hobbit, but you know, if you don't bring those things to the Hobbit, there's very little reason to think well of the elves, of the Wood Elves especially, no. except for the fact that they turn aside from the mountain and go to the lake to help the the people of the lake when they learn about the suffering of those people. That obviously, the fact that these people, who were nothing, you know, but their trade, they didn't have an intimate relationship with them. They were trade, you know, they traded with them, but that's the only way in which they knew them or had any connection with them. But nevertheless... They they said, no, we're going to risk not getting the gold. We're going to let the gold sit there on its own in the mountain for another fortnight while we turn aside and provide, you know, humanitarian aid uh, to the people of Lake Town. That, as I said, it's one of the things which really marks them as people who have their priorities in a good place. Are we going to get anything like that? Are we going to? Is is Jackson? Do you see Jackson using this as a moment to kind of recuperate Thranduil for us? Are we going to see Thranduil do that? What do you think? Hmm. I do think there has to be some kind of redemption of Thranduil. We are going to see a change in his character. Um, it seems so likely that we would. I mean, it's it's hard yeah. to imagine. I mean, it's just good storytelling. You know? yeah. <laughs> now, the thing is, it may not be, it may not have to do with the mountain. It may have to do, like I was thinking, you know, what happens when he gets to, like we were talking about what happens with Tariel. Well, so she stays in Lake Town, let's say. Thranduil shows up, sees her among the lake men, which gives him pause. And initially he's like angry and maybe even disowns her. Right. And he repents of that on the battlefield, especially if she ends up dying. I mean, that could be his moment of change. So that the you know, his relationship to the treasure doesn't change him. It's actually his relationship to Tariel that changes him, in which case he'd still stay a jerk with regard to, you know, how he feels about especially his necklace. Once he gets his necklace back. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. There there he also has a jewel that he desires. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, but again, see, is that just a setup, though? Because, you know, we have him, you know, with this, like, I have been affronted. Something that I, you know, desire has been kept from me, um, you know. So we, we've we been led, I think, to expect a single-minded march on the mountain from Thranduil. You know, now, by golly, he's going to go back and he's going to get his white gems with interest. Thank you very much. Um, and... But but again, it's the opportunity for him to show that there's more to it than that, that there's more to him than that. Um, maybe 
they will take the opportunity to surprise us. Um, I I, I kind of I think they will. I think that I mean they have to meet up with with um, Bard and the and the people of Lake Town at some point anyway. So I, I appeal to the principle of of why change the book if you don't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and in this case, I think it applies. Like, if they have to meet up anyway, what more sensible way would it be than to do than to have them stop by Lake Town and, and help the people? Um, certainly, it seems like I, I guess I don't know if you were if you were if you were. So we have to assume. Well, this is Peter Jackson geography, so they might have set out like two minutes before they arrived. But um, but we but but in general, we assume that that he he must have. Um, departed with his army probably not too long after the dwarves escaped if, if, if he arrives when he does would you if you if he set out with his army and then he saw <laughs> saw saw the giant the dragon flying over Lake Town and trying to burn it and stuff would he march in that direction or the other direction <laughs> well, don't forget I guess actually in the the, in the book, he doesn't he doesn't take off until he hears the dragon's dead. Right? There's yes. just a lot of time that passes. And yeah. okay, there, okay. we always have pointing elf. Don't forget, pointing elf can tell him about the yeah, dragon's was... death and about the fact that Tariel's in Lake Town. Yeah, more than likely. Yeah, more than likely, he is the instigator of the march. That's right. He, he at least certainly pointed them where to go. Um, he'll point Tariel point toward Lake Town. I, I could see. You know, I could see. I could see. Um, I could see that they certainly, in terms of in terms of how it affects his character, I see it's certainly plausible that they would that they would go to Lake Town and help, but that Thranduil would would give sort of a Thranduil style help assistance, which would be condescending and right. probably right. with you know potentially sinister intentions. Right. You know, like maybe he's gonna maybe he's gonna annex the the territory, or maybe he's just trying to manipulate the the people into taking his side in the confrontation against the dwarves. Well, and remember, there was that element. That note was there in the book when um, yeah. when he arrives, and it's and uh, and it says that the people of Lake Town are willing to strike any deal for the sake of yeah. present aid. It does sort of sound like. They are willing to concede some really disadvantageous future contracts uh, for yeah. the sake of current aid. So yeah, so the idea that Thranduil would say, um, "Yes, like I will agree to like disperse some pennies amongst the peasantry here on the shores of the lake, if you know you guys will, you know, I don't know, do what I don't know exactly what he would want from them, um, but." Um, but it basically, if 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 he if he capitalizes on this to put himself in a position of overt authority over them, perhaps, or I don't know what, or exactly. certainly, if nothing else, it's it certainly doesn't stretch the imagination to think that he'll show up and and start helping them and say, "Hey, I noticed there's some dwarves here, right. ran them over." Right. Uh, and I and it's hard. To, this puts Bard in a weird situation, right? Because because. Certainly, I can't imagine Bard saying, no, these are my dwarves. I can imagine Bard saying, here you go. Right. At the same time, if, if uh, Bard's a, Bard of the film it seems like a pretty suspicious and perceptive guy. I have a feeling that, that if he senses that, that Thranduil's not entirely, um, uh, not entirely benevolent, I, it's hard to imagine him just going along and completely cooperating. 
uh, I would imagine him being a little suspicious. Um, right, especially since that seemed to be implicit huh. in the way that Bard took the dwarves in in the first place. You know, as a smuggler, when he, you know, he yeah. was there retrieving the barrels, and um, um, he, uh, I mean, he knew right that they were coming from the elephant. You know, that they were, that they were. Didn't he know where they were coming from? Did they tell him? I mean, they they first tried to pass up like, oh yes, we're merchants and uh, we've you know we've uh, uh, you know encountered some misfortunes and we need help uh, getting into Lake Town. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, it it, it sort of seems them staring at the the Lonely Mountain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to me that um, Bard is already. I mean, he's got to suspect where they've come from, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Um, I don't know. I mean, I so so yes. That that is to say, I'm agreeing with you that it's hard for me to see Bard being the one to be kissing up to the Elven King and saying, "Oh yes, thank you, sir. Anything you say, sir, that would be great." I would expect Bard to be holding back from that and to be resisting the Elven kinda, King. Uh, returning to our point about how will the Master and or Alfred be involved, it kind of it kind of begs the question of maybe. They're still in the picture at this point. Maybe it won't be Bard that make that strikes deals. Right, strikes a deal with the elves. The whole deal striking um, thing seems, to, and you know, yeah. and maybe that's maybe that's the maybe that's the card that the master plays. Maybe in fact that's what. Okay, okay, all right. Here we go. Here we go. I've got a narrative now. Uh, Thranduil <laughs> is marching, and the master of Lake Town is getting like run out of the camp uh, on a rail, or like is about to be. So he he, he takes off. And so everyone, everyone else is like, it's a bard, you know, a bard the bowman love fest, and they're all ready to follow him. But the master goes to Thranduil and meets Thranduil as Thranduil is marching out. And the two of them strike a deal uh, that he will come and he will help the people. So then the master basically gets to rehabilitate his own position with the people by being their deliverer now. He's like, I have provided, um, I made an agreement with my friend, the Elven King to, and he, so, so that not only does he, is he able to take credit for saving all of the people, um, you know, and all of the help that the elves are able to bring now gets down to his credit, but also to sort of suggest to Bard that now the Elven King is his ally. And if Bard is going to oppose the master, he's opposing the Elven King too, and so Bard now has to step more carefully uh, around him. That would be thinking from the master's... That seems like the kind of thing the master would do. I could imagine Stephen Fry's master trying to do such a thing. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And that would make it easier then for him to try to have Alfred off Bard, so that... Because then if Bard just were to conveniently disappear, then, you know, the master just carries on doing his I am obviously the foresighted leader who has provided for the people uh, routine. Yep. Easy. No problem. Okay. But that, of course, would lead to even greater alienation between Thranduil and Bard personally. The two of them would distrust each other quite a lot. Though one wonders exactly what Thranduil's motivations, again, would be in this whole thing. I mean, like, why would he say, I'm going to submit to be used as a cat's paw by the master of Lake Town in his uh, struggle to retain his own power? Like, he obviously has to have some some different motivation. You know, I, I, I wonder how much time in the movie is going to be spent with the lead up to the siege. And in fact, the siege itself, given the name change, 
I, I wonder if it's going to actually, things are going to happen pretty rapidly. Yeah. Like within the first uh, half yeah. hour, we're going to have basically everybody in place with the orcs now approaching. And plus yeah. we've got to fit in the Dolgaldur stuff at some yeah. point, which I would That's think true. for battle. You got to think the Battle of Five Armies itself is going. Excuse me, the Battle of Five of the Armies Outside itself the is armies. going is going to take um, is going to take at least what, like an hour of screen time. Oh, I would think so. I would think so. With all of the and Jackson's pres- uh, promising us a lot of emotion. Yeah. So besides the battle stuff, oh, now I will say, and you know, there was a, a video, and we'll go into this in a lot more detail once we finish with the riddle game. But I think it was um, Evangeline Lilly actually said that she didn't think Jackson was actually doing a Battle of Helms Deep type battle portrayal. Mm-hmm. That it's not going to be that involved like it was in Two Towers, um, which would you know that's another kind of data point, I suppose. But still, I think yeah, I think it's got to be like an hour. It's gotta, it's got it's gotta. T- I mean, especially when you include what have to, what presumably are, um, you know, dramatic deaths and yeah, uh, and uh, the Iron Hill dwarves have to show up and the Eagles have to show up. And, yeah, I mean, even if you don't get uh, an elaborate sort of strategic setup like we did get in the Battle of Helm's Deep, um, still just to get the different movements within right. that battle, you know. Uh, as right. you say, the dwarves of the Iron Hills, the 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 the, Bjorn the eagles, Bjorn, up. yeah, there are, you know Thorin's last charge. There's got to be some analog to Thorin's. Final we got the Arkenstone issue to have happen. Right, Thief and the knife has to take place. Right, 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 exactly. So, yeah, it's true that there's just not a lot of. Uh, not a lot of time because we do, as Dave said, we do have to get through the, the Dol Guldur stuff as well. Um, we have to do that. We still have to do the death of Smaug and the destruction of Lake Town That's right. and That's then the right. build up of the siege. And then we still need to have at least a little bit of time for a back again afterwards, you know? And, and of yeah. course we, 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 we have the aftermath of the, of the battle. So at least in this, you know, we, we've got to, he can't not do Thorne's deathbed scene. So we've oh, got to have something like that. Is. Um, Absolutely, and then we still have you know the the return and the closing afterwards. So I suppose the depressing answer to that bit is we could actually segue from Dorne's death, deathbed scenes straight to the bookend. Yeah, yeah, you know, straight to the frame narrative, which would be sad, but it could happen. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Um, I was thinking that too earlier on. Um, well, let's get to actually explaining our our riddle. Um, which is sort of related to these issues we've just been talking about with uh, Bard and Thranduil and the Master of Lake Town and and everything else. So no, let me. I'm starting to think we may we we might need to add another option. Nah, <laughs> nah, we don't need another option. <laughs> We're good. Okay, so here's our riddle. We do have a third. I mean, we could we do have a fifth of a slot if we want to. Okay, well, let's see. How will Thranduil relate to the men of Lake Town with regard to the siege? A. Thranduil will be a wise, benevolent, and passive supporter. That's the book answer. So, again, because clearly in the book, there's no question, Bard is in charge, right? Bard is the spokesman. You think of all of the contexts that we get. We get, you know, the, when they're talking before the gates um, with Bilbo in the Thief of the Night, cha- in the, the Thief in the Night chapter, um, all the way through, we get, this is Bard negotiating with Thorin, and the Elven King is just standing there, usually silently, um, supporting Bard, and um, and in the you know he speaks in the Thief in the Night chapter, but again it's to Bard that 
Bilbo has come to give the Arkenstone. He doesn't come to give it to the Elven King. He comes to give it to Bard. Um, and the Elven King is there and, you know, is, is supporting Bard and is Bard's friend and Bard is treating him like his friend. Um, but again, clearly it is Bard who is at the head of that army. Bard is the one who is um, giving battle orders when the battle is about to begin. So, um, so again, so I say that the book answer to this question is that he is Bard is in control. Bard is the general of the combined army, and Thranduil is uh, his wise, benevolent, and passive supporter. B option B is that uh, he is an active ally on equal terms. So this will clearly be, you know, so all parley. You know, all, all, all parleys and things will be between, you know, Thorin and Thranduil and Bard operating on equal terms. Or, you know, that, that, that we'll get the leader of the, the men and the leader of, of, of the elves and the leader of the dwarves meeting together in like a three-way summit. That's, again, I, I think it's different from how it's depicted in the book, but we could, we could see that. You know, the two of them agreeing to go together and to work and to negotiate with Thorin together. Three, Thranduil is clearly in charge. He is obviously the general of the combined army. Um, the men are supporting him. Um, they, you know, they, they may have a voice. They may be involved. Surely they're going to be talking about Bard's claim to some of the treasure. But again, it will be primarily Thranduil who will be in charge. Um, he's the one who's the boss. And then D would be they arrive independently. They're not actually, they don't form a combined army at all. We have separate camps of the men and of the elves, and the two of them sort of engage in any negotiation separately, um, and they are not in any way officially combined. Those mm-hmm. are our four options. So, what do you guys think? Where uh, where would you map? Um, where would you map? Uh, 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 Thranduil. Um, passes himself off as A, but is the Machiavellian um, uh, manipulator. Because that's kind of what I was thinking, you know, with the with sort of the direction I was heading with, you know, he kind of shows up and sort of, maybe even he strikes a deal with the master or whatever, but maybe, you know, he says like, oh, Bard, you know, you go talk to them and you, you'll be in charge, just make sure you include these points. But but it's just sort of obvious, either through conversations with his, his generals or whatever, that that he's like pulling all the strings, and, or that Bard is being, that. or that Bard is being coerced into this. That, so, you know, so, that, so we have like, a, as an alternative to A. Then we have uh, that uh, Thranduil is related to them as an insidious, uh, malevolent, and manipulative supporter. Essentially, yes. <laughs> okay, okay, That's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, just you know, in the in the it's perhaps theoretically very, very, possible. very unlike, yeah, perhaps in the very very unlikely chance that that happens, what what do we want to call that? Just you know, just for completeness. Do I need to add a, none of the above to cover our bases? Or or we could or we could just decide that that is going. We're going to treat that as as C. Yeah. I have an idea, Trish. Let's revise the wording of C a little bit. Let's take out general. That he is the clear you know, that that instigator leader. That he is the force. Force the, the force yeah. behind he the is combined the, army. He is the yeah. That he is in charge. He, he is, is in the charge. puppet master. He is right. Because then whether he were 
standing out in front and commanding them or whether he is puppet mastering behind the scene, which I agree, I find unlikely. He doesn't seem like a puppet master to me. Um, he seems a little too arrogant to be a puppet master. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. But, uh, but I would, I would, I guess I would call that C. That makes sense to me. Um, so, yeah. what's the right word there? Let's see. Uh, Timothy Fisher clear... suggesting commander, um, force leader uh, behind. How is the clear force behind the combined army? Yeah, or how about just the dominant just, figure? Just um, dominated. Sorry. Dominating the combined army. Yeah, as the dominant as the dominant figure. The dominant figure in the combined army. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Whether whether overtly he's giving commands, telling Bard what to do, or covertly he's you know plant, planting suggestions in in Bard's mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's see. Um, really hard so to I... see him playing, you know, insidious counselor. Well, I mean, in some on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, I'm I'm just trying to imagine how can they take. Well, okay, that's true. Except for what what did we see in Desolation of Smaug? Um, the, the sense I got the 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 the, the duel, you know, in his interactions with Thorin, that's very much kind of the way I saw him as as like, you know that that there he he never until the end at least when he threw them in prison he you know he initially was like oh welcome thorn i want to help you you know there's some gems i'd like to get too and and i don't think any of that was sincere i think yeah. that was all i think that was all passive aggressive you know it was it was um antagonism hidden masked by politeness mm-hmm. uh, so that's kind of what I had in mind. That's what I'm. That's what I'm thinking when I say this. That it's right. going to be that kind. Of, that kind of Thranduil who's going to show up and say, "Oh yeah, I'm here to help you guys." He's going to be underhanded and, and manipulative. Really, yeah. Let me tell you what really help you. You should go to the mountain with us and help us get help us get the treasure. Right. Um, okay, and that he sets Bard up as a kind of a. a as a kind of puppet, be you know, so that he comes and he's like, "We're just this is all about Bard and Bard's claims. Bard killed the dragon. Yeah. That some of that treasure was the treasure of Dale. Really, you want to give? Oh, and P.S. Could you throw in those white gems, please? That would be that would be great. You yeah, know, and Bard our, is like is our, our yeah finder's fee. Finder's fee, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a little retainer, you know, for the uh, for the for the services of the Elven King. Um, yeah. Okay. No, I can. I, you're, that's 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 uh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I could still argue for D. You know, I mean, we got Thranduil as War Moose, sort of topping the ridge like he did in the beginning of film one. The man arriving at a completely separate time. So the only t- the first time that Bard and Thranduil actually meet is when they're parlaying with. Uh, Right, and of course, this would be in the scenario in which we get no humanitarian aid from the elves, so that right, basically right. the the people of Lake Town just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and right. say, "Hey, let's go to the let's let's go to the mountain." This actually I find very plausible. I sort of suspect that like the suffering refugee camp that uh, Tolkien goes, as I've said many times, what I feel is so far out of his way to describe uh, in the book. 
is certainly something that we don't necessarily have to get in the films. If we have people, you know, having escaped out of the boats and they're all standing there, you know, to have them say, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Just to be like, hey, let's go to the mountain. Um, you know, le- the dragon's dead. Let's go back to Dale. Let's go to the mountain. Le- there's gold. Let's go claim the gold, and then we can start rebuilding Dale. Um, and so everyone's like, yeah, okay. So all the people of Lake Town pick up, and they walk the, you know, they take the, like, 45-minute walk up the shore of the <laughs> lake to the Lonely Mountain, and there they are. And then, as you say... While they're there, Thranduil and his, you know, moose cavalry come over the rise, and instead of like turning away this time, they come to yeah, you know, yeah, that, that this 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 seems to me, this seems to me perfectly plausible. By the way, I, I mean, I, Jackson's I, way of doing things that would be the fastest way of getting all three, right? You know, right, armies right. together. Because then we could still have. I still, you know, in, in 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 all of the thinking about how much needs to happen in film three and all of the probable haste of many of these things, I still hold out for the fact that um, uh, that that there's got we've got to get there's there's too much complex. Um, political standoff going on. We can't just plunge into battle. I refuse to believe that they're going to kill the dragon. They're going to march up. The elven army is going to march in and the battle of five armies is just going to start off right away. We've got to have that period of negotiation, the division, you know, the, the Fiwi Kiwi Thorin thing, the, the, the Thranduil Legolas Toriel thing, the, you know, all of that stuff. The Arkenstone to one or both. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that stuff has to happen but it doesn't necessarily have to happen we don't have to get the humanitarian aid first we could have right. those three parties meeting separately um and uh and um and then entering into this sort of three-way negotiation um right. Which is, you know, each side of which is complicated. You know, you've got Bard and the Master on, on the one hand, and you've got the other divisions we've already just mentioned. Um, so, yeah, I, that, that, that I, 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 I refuse to believe that we're going to get no preliminary Siege of the Lonely Mountain kind of debates and discussions and parleys um, before we start into a battle proper. Besides, they've got to give Roach some time to get back and <laughs> forth to the, to the Iron Hills, you know. I know it doesn't take that long to travel, but we've got to we've got to we've got to allow some scope for the full development of Roach's character. So there's got to be Plus some they've time. Got to, they've got to saddle up the war pigs. Yeah, exactly. They, they, war pigs take some saddling, I think. So um, uh, I'm uh, I'm 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 going to go on record. I predict at least twenty to thirty minutes of screen time dedicated to to the intricacies of the negotiations uh-huh. of the, the siege. I yeah. can see that. I think that, in fact. They really should have just... That's what they should have called the movie. Yes. Complex negotiations prior to the Battle of Five Armies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The summit at the Lonely Mountain. An equal amount of screen time dedicated to to Roax. Yeah. I mean, obviously... Obviously, with occasional check-ins back to the Shire and the, Gosh, and, the you know, and the the auction. Yeah, you figure we've got a half an hour of Smaug dying. We got a half an hour of at least a half an hour of the siege. We what a half an hour, maybe Battle of Dalguldur, and an hour for Battle of Five Armies. Okay, well, and then we go straight to the frame narrative with old Bilbo wrapping things up for Frodo before no, no. To see Gandalf. No, 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 no. We have oh. a long, lingering return journey back. Uh, stopping at every stop along the way. 
with lingering closure conversations with Randuel and Bard. That'll be in the extended edition. Oh, and, and don't forget, uh, we got Seltrian somewhere in here, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, of course. We got the whole story of Thran, who's been living as a mad hermit off in the woods right. for all this time. Oh, and by the way, we've got to explain the whole dwarven rings of power thing and where the, the <laughs> ring of Durin has ended up, and we've got to find that under a statue in Del Guldur, apparently. I, uh, yeah. yeah. There was a, there was a, a, a image put up on the Tolkien Society Facebook page the other day that I shared on Riddles of the Dark page that got a huge number of likes, which is a picture of the Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, edited by Peter Jackson, and it's like huge. It's like the book looks like it's about three feet high. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yes, I saw that. I saw that. Oh gosh. Well, I'm going on. I'm going. I'm going with D. I've decided. I think D. the two armies will arrive independently. Yeah. I just think for brevity's sake, and I think we, like you said, we can still get all the the intricacies happening, but just at the mountain. Like Thranduil seeing Tauriel in the Lakeman's company, for example, is going to be a biggie. Yeah. But that could happen in the mountain as easily as it could. Yeah, I should also mention, by the way, if you if you voted, if you're with us live and you voted right away at the very beginning, you might need to re-vote because... Uh, 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 you I don't think you... Oh, before no. I launch the new one? Yeah, because it, it got reset when Trish changed the wording. So those of you who had oh, cast your Oh, it was zero when I, when I reset it. Yeah, the second time, but actually there had been yeah. votes the first time. So anyway, so if oh. if you voted before, make sure you go back and make sure you and go back vote. and vote again. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, so Dave, did you did you, did you you've made some bold predictions, but they weren't actually related to the riddle. Are, are, are you no. ready to <laughs> vote on the riddle? Sort of typical part of the course. Uh, I I'm going with C. Um, and in particular, the flavor of C is I'm 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 going with my uh, with with the the uh, uh, Elven King as as master manipulator. Manipulator, yeah. Mm, okay. okay. Yep. I like that. Yep. I like that sub flavor of uh, of C there. This is one of the closest votings I think we've had from our listeners it ever. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and also surprising the 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 just the utter disregard for the book answer. Well, the book answer seems actually. So I'm surprised unlikely. anybody's voted for the yeah. book answer. I think one person has voted for the book answer, and that is a, uh, that is a hundred percent higher than I expected it to be. Bless you. Um, because, yeah, it's really hard to imagine film Thranduil, as he was depicted in the second film, being Bard's wingman through the through the you know the whole thing. It just that seems really unlikely. So, um, I... Okay, you're, you're yeah. stalling, Olsen. I'm so stalling. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, A is hard to see. B, um, the difficulty with B is that it's so clear that the Elven King is, is, is obviously so much more powerful than the men of Lake Town. I mean, that's just... The idea of that being an equal partnership is different. Well, he's a horrible snob too. I yeah, mean, he's just. I yeah, mean, I want to say well, bigot actually. That that's why I mean that's why in some sense that's that's why I'm going with the with the the sort of the Machiavellian answer because the, the only way I can imagine it being sort of an active ally or even A the only way I could imagine it being A or B is if it's if it's the facade of that if it's him saying like right. oh I'm just here to help you guys out right right but he's in fact. 
manipulating things behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. That he has no, in, you know, that 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 he that things will go the way he wants them. He's not actually putting Bard or whoever in charge. I mean, the way we've seen him so far is he doesn't really... I mean, he's pretty straightforward. I mean, he's at least so far in his... We've never seen him talking to men yet, but, you know, he hasn't really pulled any punches with anybody. He's pretty much been clear about where he stood about things. Though, I mean, I agree with Dave that he was being manipulative of Thorin and trying to... I mean, he, he was proposing oh, a, yeah. a deal, a bargain to Thorin. Yeah. Um, and obviously willing to negotiate hard because... You know the consequence of rejecting the deal was throwing them in prison. Um, excuse me, throwing them in guest suite. So um, <laughs> they, with, the, with the view of the fountain, <laughs> just just down the hall from the Feast of Starlight. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. So okay, let's see. Um, he just seems like such a such a polite guy. Right. It's hard to imagine him overtly being a jerk until until sort of it comes to it, I guess. Are you kidding, really? No, well, I mean, I just the 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 Thran, the, the duel that I feel like we've seen on screen, I don't see him showing up and finding Lake Town burning and the the humans destitute and him just being like, "Yo, oh, you poor scum." I I I I see him being like coming in and being like, "Oh, well, um yeah, we were on our way to help." I don't uh, see him even remember? hitting Lake Town at all. I mean, I think in Jax's world, there's a go- right on by. No, 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 no. I well, think that's... there's another. I think there's another road to the mountain. I mean, I just well, don't, I don't. I don't think they necessarily have to go to Lake Town. <laughs> and actually, to actually, if he did march on by, that would be par for the course for him. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You know, please help us. I've got someplace else to be. Right. That, right. That's true. He does have a history of that. Well, and also the fact that Jackson's, you know, the way, I mean, I just can see his armies going, you know, there's a different path, you know, like a different way around. The opposite side of the lake, there's a road. I do (laughs) think the one one other thing that is taking shape in my mind that I do kind of like is the notion of them showing up at the mountain separately. And then it not even being, then it truly being a confrontation of potentially three armies, uh, you know, that, that, that there's, that they're, they're not in the same camp. They're not on the same page. That that we have a really complex debate going on. But sure. the problem with that is it's hard to imagine the the humans being any any threat whatsoever to the elves. Right, right. Yes, one could almost call that the confrontation of the three armies. Really, <laughs> that's right. Um, yes, I think uh, he finds out the dragon's dead, and he goes, "Ooh, time to go get my necklace." Because surely those dwarves are burnt to a crisp. So I'm off to get the necklace. Yeah, right. Um, um, one one possibility we did discount is what if the moose is in charge? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but clearly the answer is if the moose is in charge, then the army will be in better hands, obviously, because <laughs> this is going to be an upgrade, I think. Um, now, has everybody voted? We've got eighty-two percent voted. It says so far. You know, yeah, we've got eighty. I got eighty. Eighty-five percent voted here, and oh, and and I, I feel here. I am. I am hovering because I have not only you two have split between C and D, but right now C and D are tied for the lead know, among the eighty-five percent who have voted. So I feel like here I am with like a casting vote. You know, among you have, no, well, you, you don't have, count on the list. You have only. Vote, so it doesn't you matter. have only one. There's a clear path, Corey. 
A. <laughs> a, exactly, yeah. You can be the third person who picks it. It is time for me to choose the most staggeringly unlikely uh, answer possible in my traditional... But I just can't think of a way that that happens. Um, okay, okay. You could go with B. I can think of a way that that happens. Now, hang on. Here, here, here's a way that A happens. The way that A would happen, what would have to happen in order for A to occur, is for Thranduil to have a real change of heart. You know, there would have yeah. to be, it would have to be a real recuperative moment for Thranduil's character. There would have to be a moment of just pure altruism on his part, where he decides, like, these people are really in need, this is awful, and I am just going to focus my energies on really helping these poor people. That would be the only way in which he would act then, um, like he does in the book. Because, frankly, that seems to be what happens in the book. That's so. true. Eh, that doesn't seem that unlikely. And, 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 and it's not hard to imagine... You know, it's easy to be the good guy and generous like that when... when, when you know, if, if, if what they think is the dragon killed, the, killed Thorn and the dwarves, and then, right. and then now the dragon's dead, you know, the only potential threat to the treasure is if somebody else shows up, but there's more than enough for us to share with these people. Uh, why fight over it? We're all on the same team here. I just don't but, see. I think his change of heart's going to be a big emotional thing. I think it's going to be connected to Tauriel, probably either her dying or something. But it, I mean, I, it doesn't have to be his. It doesn't have to be his big change of heart, right? Like it could just be the, a softening of him. Him adjusting his. He shows up, you know, girded for battle, and then he's like, "Oh, these four people," and mm. eh, you know, the the dwarves are dead anyway. It's fine. Let's just go up there and get our treasure, and there's plenty for everybody. And then, when when Thorin comes out, he re you know uh, uh, um, jerk Thranduil comes um, reemerges from the shadows or whatever, reasserts hmm. himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, exactly. This could totally happen because you're right. Um, there's not necessarily that much at stake for him. He doesn't have much to lose. By doing no. the humanitarian thing here, by being by doing the generous thing. No, um, he's in control after all. Anyway, he has the bigger army. The, he right. will get as much gold as he wants. And he's you know had them sign disadvantageous contracts. It, it, you know while they're because de- again, even in the book, he's not just giving altruistic aid. You know, he's he. The implication is that now it says the master is willing to do that. Um, it doesn't say explicitly that Thranduil has demanded, you know, ruinously disadvantageous future contracts, uh, you know, from the lake men in, in exchange for their aid. Um, but it's hard to avoid the implication that in the end Thranduil is going to profit from the aid that he gives to the men of Lake Town, one way or the other. Even if it's just by gaining a moral high ground, he had no moral high ground. Had he shown up with his army at the mountain as he was first setting out to do, he would simply have been a looter. I mean, that's all that would have been. However, when he shows up in defense of the rightful heir of Dale, now he's not a looter. Now he's, you know, helping to reestablish the proper order and receive, you know, a generous share because. Exactly. Benevolent benevolent overlord. Exactly. It's not completely unlikely. No. Not completely <laughs> unlikely. Um, it's unlikely. It's not impossible. It's Trish, unlikely. Nah, convinced. It's, it's, it's I'm not totally convinced. Convinced. No. 
I mean, yeah. you know, because the, the book, the book, the the Elven King of the book is not the same as the Thranduil of the movie. Yeah, yeah, that's clearly but true. I still think you should be gay, Corey. What if? <laughs> what if? Peter Jackson has just been setting us up to suspect this, so that like he 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 he's prompting us to believe that Thranduil is a complete jerk, so that we will be pleasantly surprised when Thranduil turns aside to give humanitarian aid to the lake men. You're really reaching there. Yeah, that's what it is. It's just lulling us into a sense of complacency about Thranduil's jerkitude, and in fact, he's not going to be a jerk after all. Okay. So we've now had 88% voted, and it's still a dead tie. So that means you're going with A? No, I'm not going with A. No, in the end... Did you convince anyone, though? No, not a single person. I don't think so. (laughs) No, I didn't. Well, I think... when I If I actually ask myself what I think most likely, I gotta go with D. I think they're gonna arrive independently. Um, I think that the most likely thing is that we're going to shorten, because something does have to be shortened in order for, to facilitate all of this other stuff, and I think the time spent at the lakeshore is the thing that's most likely to be yeah. shortened. Yeah. That's, that's true. That does seem like, if you think of it from, if you think of it from this, you know, like, if you imagine them in the cutting room... Right. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is actually a very persuasive argument. Like, what, what, can we really live, what can we live yeah. without here? We yeah. can live without scenes. Stephen, Stephen Colbert and his family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. true. If we're in a hurry, if we just need to get to the mountain as quickly as possible and, um, uh, and, and get things moving along, then yes. That that is actually it's the most like, efficient. Look at that! Look at that! Corey has had an effect. <laughs> right. right, one other person voted with me there. That's good. That's good. Um, um, well, yeah. I, I just want to. Yeah. I just want to add one other thing. What I'm really hoping is when they're sitting at the negotiation table, I'm really hoping that that uh, instead of having the goblin army show up and then everyone's like, oh, you know, to arms, to arms. I'm really hoping what happens is that Azog comes riding up and says, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. What did I miss? <laughs> <laughs> so you think they're just going to give Azog a seat at the table there when they, you yes. know, they come in? Yeah. 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 I think, I think they're going to sit down. They might even play like a game of Risk. <laughs> just going to battle it out that way. Yeah. Like poker. Yeah. Or poker. <laughs> yeah. We saved you a seat. We poured you a glass of your favorite scotch, Azog. We knew you were on your way. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, I'm sure Boy, that, that's Boy, close, though. I'll tell you, <coughs> this is still one of the closest we've had. Yes, I agree. Yes. That means it was is. an excellent riddle. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly how I'd rather than... It's just much better to think that way um, than to... Uh, Thank you, Trish. Yes, exactly. And, the, the, and the, I, I don't know. This was definitely... Too, this is the fifth riddle. The fifth, you know, candidate that we had for this episode. Yeah, this was this was, this yes. was a hard episode to do a riddle for, actually. Yes, yes, but but without the without the initial seed riddles that you provided, we may have. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Corey and I having about an hour conversation this morning about riddle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, very good. Okay. Well, we should we should wrap up as we've been keeping everybody <laughs> amply yeah. long enough. Did you today. see what Dimey said? I know. Dimey is like, oh no, Corey picked my answer. I have to switch. <laughs> yeah, that is that is wise. You can tell that Dimey has been doing this for a little while now. If you want the certificate, change your answer. <laughs> That's right. Voting with me is more or less the kiss of death. Um, it, it, it is ironic, by the way, as Timothy points out. It is a. It, it is ironic, although not. Uh, uh, although this is a an irony we have encountered time and again throughout the course of this game, that we continually run into the situation where we're like, boy, there's just too much material for this. <laughs> if only they had had the sense. If only they decided to do it right and to make like five movies out of The Hobbit, then <laughs> out of this one short book. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so inexcusable the way that they're trying to like Packing cramp in this down into three epic films. I mean, that's true. That's true. Everybody else now is dividing book trilogies into four films. Yes. Why are they not dividing this? single book film trilogy into more it's yeah there's really no excuse for it I think it's just it's obviously the studio people pushing them to say you know well maybe they will announce a fourth movie now about Bilbo's trip back home yes yes back again I personally I'm really hoping they're going to go the Marvel Studios route and they're going to create like a TV show spinoff that covers the, the adventures of the the law firm that runs the auction. <laughs> there we go. There we go. A, 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 a Shire Hobbiton, Law. Yes, a Hobbiton-based legal drama. Yeah. There you go. You know, actually, as a as a as a sitcom concept, that really has potential. I have to say. It does. <laughs> you know, it does. join the law maybe firms can, of maybe, Grubs, maybe Grubs, and Burrows. Maybe we could just continue on and do that as a, um, you know, the next show after Riddles in the Dark. We'll just do it as a radio show. Yeah. Yeah. We should. Law, yeah. Law and Order Shire unit. Yes. Exactly. I like that a lot. Exactly. I think that's great. Or, yeah. Or, you know, or, CSI. Or, CSI. Exactly. CSI, CSI Hobbiton. Hobbiton. That's just what I was thinking. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, again, but see, this is the thing that we've been saying all along. I mean, you know, Dave, you and I were joking about this way back in season one, you know, when we were talking about this and saying, how are they possibly going to do it? Um, And it's just but it's it's this is one of the things that I think that people don't really understand about that. They really take for granted. They don't think through about the process of adapting a story to film. You know, when you're yep. doing adaptation, there is so much to do, and it you can't do it. P- people overlook the fact. You know, people say, "How can you take this one little book and make it into a into three major films?" That one little book takes eleven hours to read to do an unabridged yeah. reading of. You know, it's not it. it we, the media just don't switch over like that. I mean, it's um, so. The fact is, even if you don't add anything to the book story. You can't do justice to the book story, you know, like a the purport, the size of the Hobbit compared to your average book, to your average fantasy book, is not going to be, the, you know, the proportion of the size of a Hobbit film to other films. It's not like you're going to get like, oh, well, since uh, you know, 
if you say your average movie is like two and a half to three hours long and The Hobbit is an unusually short book, so you should be able to do it in one hour and a half long film. Like, that's just dumb. I mean, you're not thinking about what it actually means to adapt something to, to, to the different medium. Yep. So I, I, I have you found know, that argument very difficult to handle from the beginning. But I mean, I understand the you, apparent disproportion with The Lord of the Rings, but still. Yeah. You, you know what really really puts us in sharp relief um i don't know Corey. do you watch the game of thrones i haven't been i haven't been keeping i'm I'm watching but i'm way behind i haven't been keeping up it's like watching um it's it's like it's 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 fascinating because you're basically watching this very this process of adaptation unfold um and you're actually what you're and because george r R. martin's involved you're witnessing multiple phenomena you're seeing the process of adaptation, but you're also seeing the process of, of, uh, of almost Tolkien-esque revision. Right. Like they're right. they're because they're changing changing things here right. and there. They're refining um, and revising of the story. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're inserting and 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 many of the best scenes are not from the book, where they just decide, hey, you know what would be really cool? These two characters should have a conversation, and right. it, you know, as opposed to. As opposed to moving, as opposed to where like having a narrator explain that this this thing's happening and developing the drama between these characters indirectly, we're just going to have them having on screen face to face and move it along. And those are some of the best scenes. And it's as I watch it, I'm just sitting there thinking like, boy, this is really you know, it's kind of an interesting to watch the adaptation happen. And they're you know they're shifting timelines around. They're they're kind of moving some events up earlier in the story and moving some later and borrowing things from later books. And, yeah, and and, uh, and 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 you know, people have to keep in mind as well. You have to think about the nature of the work that you're adapting to. I mean George yeah. R. R. Martin. Again, you wouldn't expect it. it people could say, well, look at even if you total up the total hours of the miniseries, you know the proportion of minutes of 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 screen time to pages of book is so much different from the proportion of, you know, minutes of screen time to pages of book for The Hobbit, right? I mean, you've got the one huge expansion and you've got the other which is cutting down because George R. R. Martin is so long. Yeah, but that's because the nature of the books are so much different. I mean, George R. R. Martin's book, for anyway, if you, I mean, my question, my response to that would be, you know, have you read George R. R. Martin's books? I mean, they're so long in part because they are incredibly luxurious world building. And if you really yeah. like fantasy world building, it's one of the greatest elements of George R. R. Martin's books. But I mean, we're talking about an author who will spend like 50 pages giving you like the full story and background of this really minor character who's just been introduced and we learn his whole life history and the history of his line. And then we follow him through like possibly several days or weeks of his life until finally he died. Turns out he was a red shirt all along and he's going to die and no <laughs> yeah. one's going to hear of him ever again. And like that whole segment was just to introduce us to this one like concept or idea or this one element of history or something. But you know what? Like you cut those from the miniseries and you know what you have all you have to do is focus on the main plot lines and you've already reduced the story a great deal, where again the Hobbit doesn't work that way, um, and certainly not the revised Lord of the Rings world Hobbit that Peter Jackson is describing. It's all about you know filling in blanks and and connecting dots and things like that, which is again with George R. R. Martin, it's about you know cutting down those extra things that aren't really needed to drive the main story forward. Again, not saying they don't have a function in the books, and you know that's it, it is an interesting function on its own, but it's not simply moving the plot forward. It's, 
Yeah, it's just a different. It's just it, it. It you know like you really have to stop thinking of the things as equivalent, right? Uh, as even telling the same story, but exactly. they're just telling very related stories. Yeah, I mean, you just have two parallel developments of the same kind of idea, and it's and it just and to to let it to let it be its own medium, to let it do its own thing, and certainly insisting on you know sort of the same kind of proportion and focus, it, it gets. Uh, when it's, this is all really over, Corey, uh, you should uh, you should uh, write a book on uh, adaptations. You know, it's something I have been thinking about a lot. You know, it would be kind of fun you know, you to do. You could do it, or you could invite your your um, um, uh, many many prestigious and brilliant um, uh, people <laughs> like like Professor Reed, for example, to contribute essays and just do it edit it in an anthology. It would be very interesting. It, it, it would be fun to do. Um, what would be a fun project, which I don't have time to do, but maybe would someday, is to do a comparison of several different adaptations as adaptations, you know, to, to, to look at a few different, in, in similar genres. You know, so to do something like the Game of Thrones adaptation, the Hobbit adaptation, and then, you know, a third one, maybe. Um, uh, and 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 sort of thinking about looking at the kind of adaptation we, decisions that have been can made. We, and can we throw in like um, can we throw in like just just uh, some individual chapters or just short vignettes on truly terrible adaptations like the Dresden <laughs> Files? Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, yeah, we could do that. We could do that. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, the the. Um, one of uh, Trisha's doppelgangers has suggested the Harry Potter uh, ones. Of course, that would be another obvious, oh, yeah, uh, um, an obvious. The uh, Hunger Games. Uh, uh, well, yeah, Hunger Games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the, there's a lot of potential. It would be interesting. Or, you know, and and, uh, and the, just the the myriad of Sherlock Holmes adaptations yeah. show you all kinds of different uh, editorial decisions. Maybe the thing to do would be to do like a. Uh, a Mythgard Academy series on adaptations and just yes. do like a sequential look at a bunch of different adaptations. That would be cool. Yes. Can we go edit the voting right now? <laughs> that would be cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. There are lots of potentials there. That would be fun. That would be, that would be a lot of fun. We could, we could, we could do a sort of not a detailed discussion of the book maybe, but a quick discussion of the book and then a look at the adaptations. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. Um, this is reminding me to transition to announcements. So, speaking of the Mythgard Academy, we do have, um, um, well, first of all, speaking of adaptations and the Mythgard Academy, we are finishing up the Ender's Game class. So, tomorrow, that is Saturday, May 3rd, at 3 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon, at a time which is not torturous to Europeans. Uh, we are doing a bonus session on the book. We're going to talk about the very end of the book, the very last chapter of the book, um, as well as uh, fielding some questions and comments that people have been sending in to me. We're going to do that uh, tomorrow on Saturday, the next Tuesday. Um, we're uh, to Next Tuesday, May 6th, we will do our final session in which we will talk about the recent film adaptation of Ender's Game. So that will be the conclusion of our Ender's Game class. Um, the voting is in, and we have uh, have officially announced it. For those of you who haven't heard, um, the next two books we are going to be covering through the Mythgard Academy will be uh, Dune by Frank Herbert and 
The Book of Lost Tales, Part 1. So we are going to... Uh, the voters have decided to uh, take the first step on what could be a very long-term trip through the history of Middle-Earth series. We're going to start with Volume 1, The Book of Lost Tales, Part 1, uh, and we're going to discuss our way through that. For So for people who have been interested to read the history of Middle-Earth but have felt kind of at sea in it um, or have had a hard time sticking with it, um, I urge you to join us for our uh, Mythgard Academy class. We're going to do that one first. So, um, And we're, gonna, we're planning to start that uh, on May 20th. So we're going to skip a week in between the Ender's Game class and the Book of Lost Tales class, but Tuesday, May 20th, we're going to start uh, with the Book of Lost Tales. Um, so, yeah, I, I encourage you to think about um, joining us for that, um, for the um, the launching off of our our reading of our first volume of the history of Middle-earth. I think it should be a lot of fun. You can brush up on your Silmarillion, and we'll be looking at um, sort of um, going back in time to look at Tolkien's early thoughts about uh, about this world and about this history. And I'm so, so displeased about this. I'm just so displeased. I know Trish is really upset because she doesn't have time. So she's. Really, I don't have time. You know, yeah, I know. I wanted it to be a. I wanted it to be a book. It was okay that I would be missing, and this is just <laughs> not okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sorry, but it'll be there. It'll still be there. You know, we'll have recordings uh, which you can go back I know, and look at. I know. That's true. Well, that's true. It's probably better anyway than that way. I'm not, you know, trying to ask you silly questions. <laughs> but anyway, so we will start with the Book of Lost Tales, and then after that, we will, we will be doing Dune by Frank Herbert, which I am very excited about. Um, I, uh, uh, it's one of that's one of my favorite books. Dune was. Um, uh, a book I read in high school, actually, and really, really loved. It's it's been one of my favorites for a long time. Um, so I'm very excited to do Dune as well. So um, anyway, so that's what's coming up for the Mythgard Academy. Uh, last announcement is the Mythgard summer semester for our regular classes starts on Monday, this coming Monday, the fifth. So this weekend is uh, that we we will we allow people to register a little bit late. You know, we have the equivalent of like an ad drop period for the first two weeks. So if you, it's not your absolutely last chance to sign up for these classes, but if you want to be involved live from the beginning, it is your last chance because they start on Monday and Tuesday of next week. Um, so again, the three classes we're offering this summer. Um, I am offering a Canterbury Tales class. If you want to read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, if you've always been curious about Chaucer and really want to want to uh, take a stab at reading Chaucer and, and really sort of get to see why everyone has always made a big deal about Chaucer, I know a lot of people are forced to read some bits of the Canterbury Tales in modern translation in high school or college surveys or something like that and often find it, uh, you know absurd or boring or something like that and it's it's i always find it really sad when people are exposed to chaucer um in these uh in these ways so we're gonna um i'm really excited to dig in and look at the canterbury tales in detail with people um and there have been a lot of people signing up for that class it should be a lot of fun um we're also doing dr sturgis is doing her harry potter class so for those of you who are potter fans um this is really just a a, an an opportunity you're not going to want to miss um going through the harry potter saga with amy sturgis is a real treat she will uh it's it's a very eye-opening experience um dr sturgis of course is the first person who ever taught uh, a, a 
university course on Harry Potter. Um, and uh, she's going to be doing it with us again. This is the second time she's done it for us uh, at Mythgard. So that will, it's just, if you've never taken a class with Amy Sturgis, you totally should because she is awesome. And our third class is our Lord of the Rings class um, uh, with Professor Robin Reed. So for uh, people who are interested to learn more about uh, cultural studies and audience reception theory, so this is looking at the Lord of the Rings, not only studying the work of the Lord of the Rings, but looking at the impact that the Lord of the Rings has had on other, on, on other cultures, the impact that, that Tolkien's culture had upon the book, looking at, looking at the book in the context of its immediate culture, and then looking at the impact that it has had on culture outside. You know, as I've said before, this is something that I think a lot of people talk about, but very few people actually look at carefully. Um, and to get the chance to, uh, to do that with somebody like Dr. Reed, who uh, um, does so much with cultural studies stuff and, and is, is uh, uh, she's wonderful. Can I just say I, I, I listened to the the recent um, Rills in the Dark super erogatory. Yes. Uh, which, by the way, folks, if you're not listening to that, you absolutely need to. It's great. Um, uh, and I and it which in, and the most recent one includes your interview with Professor right. Reed. And, right. And, oh, boy, she is sharp. She yes. is so good. Yes. Holy crap, she is so good. And, she is. And, and I I really like. Um, I really nothing nothing against you, uh, Corey, but um, but you know, uh, you and you and, and a lot of the some you know some of the other uh, uh, um, um, some of the other sort of well known Tolkien scholars and academics and a lot, and the people who listen to your podcast, um, you know, your 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 I don't know what you would call us your your following entourage something like that, uh, students. <laughs> You know, we we share a certain sensibility. Uh, 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 you know, almost like uh, uh, you know, we're a lot of us aren't trained medievalists like you, but we we have that kind of the same affinity for yes. for that culture and that stuff. And it's so interesting to hear somebody coming from a completely different angle. Somebody somebody who's um, somebody who's who, who's who's uh, uh, talking about. Um, I, I thought it was really fascinating the discussion about um, uh, her. The, the stuff you guys talked about when you were talking about pictorial, yes. about the the sexism, um, uh, you know, of the fandom's reception. Uh, you know, it's really neat to hear that. Like, it's nice to hear that when we when we see that kind of analysis. There's a tendency that that tends to come from outsiders, right? Right. Uh, and it's really neat to see somebody who's an insider, who's a fan, but just has a very different sensibility and is and is paying attention to things that are very different from what we traditionally would pay attention to. Yeah, that was a that that's a neat. Con- I haven't finished listening to the whole thing. Um, I've been listening to it on runs, but it's a really cool conversation. I have a feeling that class of hers is going to be amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, it, you know, more and more um, there has been a shift. Of course, you know, Tolkien studies really was you know born among the medievalists you know that's it's it's really the medievalists mm-hmm. uh like tom shippey and and others who who really you know started taking tolkien seriously um but more and more there has been a very appropriate shift into studying tolkien more thoroughly within a, within the 20th century context but it's still so often um I agree with you that a lot of Tolkien fans are still kind of, even unconsciously, sort of immersed in the Tolkien as medievalist um, way of looking at things, you know. And 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 Tolkien himself kind of encourages this, you know. I mean, if you if all you know is the books and you've never read any criticism, um, you know, you're likely to be thinking in terms of 
uh, you know, the sort of medieval culture that Tolkien has uh, ha- has really sort of invested his stories with. Um, but I think it's it, it is really refreshing and really interesting and really important um, to to really back up and think about these books um, in their immediate actual context because it's easy to forget about them. You know, I, I, I do find sometimes I slip into thinking about these books as if it's just not like I, I ignore all the people reading them, you know, the millions of people reading them in the 20th century. And I really just think about like Tolkien sitting in his study and, you know, his books, you know, I, I imagine like Tolkien, his manuscript and his bookshelf interacting with each other, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and really ignoring the, 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 the other factors, you know, from outside in his culture that, that impact him, um, or really downplaying those in my own mind. Um, mm-hmm. and then of course, the thing, the thinking th- very little about the impact that he has on others. So, yeah. The thing that I find have, and have found fascinating, and I'm really looking forward to taking Robin's course, um, is, I mean, there's other writers, you know, Lewis is, you know, we talk about Lewis, you know, along with Tolkien. But if you really think about it in terms of an impact on society as a whole, Tolkien far outstrips Lewis. And then there's other writers, you know, who are excellent writers. But it's just a, always been amazing to me that, that Tolkien's works have, you know, it's the thing about... Um, I've heard it, you know, this said a couple of times that, you know, what was the, there was like a, a study done at the turn of the millennium, millennium or a survey, several yes. surveys actually with different, you know, about what was the most uh, uh, significant book in the century. And I mean, you know, literati were aghast that Lord of the Rings turned out to be the winner. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, uh, the Joyce people tried again and again to frame the question <laughs> in such a way as to make Joyce turn out to win, um, but Tolkien wins every single time, no matter every how you construe time. it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you look at the game, the role-playing, the games, the, the, the impact the movies have had. I mean, you know, like, I'm on the Tolkien Society Facebook page quite a bit, and there's a lot of young people and a lot of people that are coming at it from the movies. And there are things almost becoming canon, as much as I hate to say this, among some of the fans that are really only movie-based. And right. so what is the, you know, what's the cultural, what's the sociological kind of effect? I mean, I think it's really, really fascinating. And it yeah. just amazes me that this has had such a far-reaching effect. So I'm really looking forward to her collapse. I think it's going to be great. And some really bizarre and unexpected effects. You know, that like <laughs> that's some of the things that I find um, that I find so fascinating about uh, some of the stuff that Robin is doing um, is when you look at the ways in which Tolkien has been read and in which Tolkien has been interpreted in other cultures, and there are things right. we wouldn't have guessed at. I mean, like when we were talking about, you know, Dave in that interview, is the way in which in the Italian culture, um, Tolkien was associated with fascism, strongly associated with fascism. Yeah, such I thought that, that was really, I mean, that I, was interesting. Yeah, and, and again, and it's not to say that anyone is arguing that Tolkien was a fascist or sympathized with the fascists, but rather, in Italy... You know, that fascist it, it, Tolkien was basically being used as fascist propaganda, doubtless in ways wow. that probably would have horrified him. But again, just to see the ways in which I, that's that's a fascinating yeah, idea. Yeah. You well, know, yeah. I guess what's interesting about it is I, that he just happened to be involved in a in a in a very similar program. Um, uh, no, okay, no, that, that's the wrong way to say it. But 
they they had a they had they're in one particular arena they had a very similar interest which is the the these core myths and, mm-hmm. and you know and connecting that to, to the present they were using it in very different ways and have very different motivations and intentions but but in that one way the the fascists could look at what he was doing and say oh yeah this is good stuff we like this yeah i mean there it's, yeah, it's it's so weird it, it it is it is a fascinating just looking at the way this is where the the audience response angle of her class is so interesting um because mm-hmm. it really helps to um i think it's 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 very instructive to see how other people have responded both you know critics who have been bashing it as well as you know other people who like it or who are sort of using it in a particular way um or or sort of turning it in a in a particular way i just uh recorded a uh tolkien chat uh with a with a longtime listener and uh and mythgard student mark painter who's been uh, who's attended both of our myth moots as well and he was talking um we were talking about the role that Tolkien had in the 1960s counterculture and sort of his his memories of um, mm. the way in which people were responding to Tolkien in the late 60s and early 70s in America. Um, and again, it's, it's just, it's so fascinating to... We think, we read Tolkien and we respond to Tolkien in particular ways. And we like to think that we're responding to the pure Tolkien, right? That like, this is we're doing these like unadulterated readings of the books, you know, that this is just, we're getting the pure spirit of the text. And then we look at something like what the fascists are doing with Tolkien and we're like, Oh, that's awful. The way that they would twist it, you know, to like fit their own agenda like that. Well, it kind of makes you look twice at the way in which we're reading it and saying, you know, are there ways in which we're doing similar things? You know, what are the processes mm-hmm. that readers undergo um, or, you know, what they do to the tech? It's just, I, I find that it, it, it is, it is really interesting to sort of compare the, the, the ways in which it seems to us so obvious, like clearly this is what the text is focusing on. Clearly this is what the text is about or what it's really interested in. But, you know, that is obvious. That might be obvious to us only because of where we are culturally situated. And there are other elements of the text that, yeah, I mean, again, one thing which, uh, you know, one, one's to me sort of obvious example is the way in which Tolkien has been seized by so many environmental activists. You know, it really speaks to people, you know, people who are interested in environmentalism often really love Tolkien um, and, uh, and really cling to a lot of those elements you know, I that, again, that's just sort of one other example um, uh, of people who are really um, f- spotlighting a particular element of the text and possibly pushing it in a direction which is, you know, not necessarily the you know, a, a direction where Tolkien himself might go. Um, but anyway, it's just it's just interesting. It's so, so it's always interesting to learn more about how other people have responded to Tolkien. I find it very instructive that that it's it's a very good sort of counteractive to some of the assumptions that I make when I go to Tolkien myself. Yeah, that's a good point. But anyway, well, we have a super bloated super episode of Three Ghosts of Riddles in the Dark today. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. For a minute there, I thought I thought there was a chance that we were going to come in not too far past the hour and a half mark, but then we did announcements for like 25 minutes, so... By the way, we didn't yeah. mention Myth Mood, which, by the way, registration will be opening shortly for Myth Mood. So. It is our hope 
It is our yes. hope that the Mythmoot Myth registration will be open by the time of our... Hopefully, at our, at our next episode, we will be able, we'll to, be announce able to announce that right. the registration is open. It should be coming very soon. Yes. So... Um, yeah, we've been we're 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 doing a kind of a, a changeover of our registration system that we use at MythGuard. So, um, and MythMoot will be the first thing that we will be publishing using the new registration system. So, that's one of the things that's been we've been kind of delayed with that sort of technical matter. So, anyway, but we can we we can confirm what we've said before: the dates, January tenth and eleventh. That is firm and definite, and the location at the BWI Marriott in Baltimore. Okay. Those are things that we definitely, definitely know, uh, and we will be uh, we will be having uh, ticket sales um, opening very soon. So early, early bird ticket sales. Early bird ticket sales. Yes, there will be a special a special price for people who sign up uh, early here in the next couple months. So that 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 will be one change from previous years. Anyway, okay, but we should I should finally be merciful and let you guys go. So thank you very much for listening today and Godspeed.